listening to Radio Sputnik. Telling the untold. Welcome to the Open University of the Airwaves with George Galloway. Only on Sputnik Radio. It's all kicking off, even at Old Trafford. Bruno, Bruno, it's kicking off in Saudi Arabia, where the Crown Prince MBS has just arrested those remaining family members that he hadn't already arrested, hung upside down, and collected all the change that fell from their pockets. And the proximate cause of this latest coup, that his relatives were planning a coup with the United States of America against him. That story will run and run. It's kicking off on the coronavirus front in the supermarket aisles. The British that were once famous for keeping calm and carrying on are fighting each other for hand gel and toilet paper. Why toilet paper? I have absolutely no idea. It's kicking off in the Democratic Party in the United States of America, where they've kicked off Tulsi Gabbard, although she qualified to be in the final debate. They kicked her off despite being a woman on International Women's Day, despite being a woman of color. So two pale old white guys will be going toe-to-toe, except Joe Biden doesn't want to go toe-to-toe. He wants to sit down. Well, you could understand it, couldn't you? If you've been watching the videos of his cognitive challenges. And it was kicking off in Moscow, where the president, Vladimir Putin, gave a good talking to to the Turkish president, Erdogan. We'll be discussing whether or not that talking to has had its desired effect and if the crisis in Idlib is coming to an end. And we'll be talking to the new media superstar, Dr. Ranjit Brar, the super surgeon who's keeping us up to date. He is the new Moats medic. It's going to be a rock and roll show. It's a radio show with pictures. So fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy ride. Radio Sputnik. We speak your language. The mother of all talk shows. The only education you can get for free. George Galloway. This is Radio Sputnik. This is London, but broadcasting to you, of course, all over the world, thanks to the wonders of the internet and sputniknews.com. We're also on FM in the Washington, D.C. area of the United States. 105.5 are the magic numbers there. And on AM across the United States from sea to shining sea. But this is a radio show with pictures, and chances are you are watching as well as listening to the mother of all talk shows. If you are on Facebook, please share, share, and share again to your followers, your friends and contacts on that medium. We need to get back up to the one million view number. We achieved a staggering increase last week. 38% on the week before. 
But we're still short of that million mark. We've only been there once, and I'm determined that we should get there and stay there. You can watch on my own Facebook, George Galloway Official, or on RT's, RT UK News, RT.com, Facebook pages. You can watch on my YouTube channel, George Galloway Official, and on RT's numerous uh, YouTube portals. You can watch even on Twitter. And you can watch, as many people are, on Instagram. How's that then? Now, I said at the beginning, it's all kicking off, and I didn't just mean uh, Old Trafford, but well done, lads. It's kicking off everywhere. Let's start with the coronavirus. It was once a hallmark of the British people that they had a stiff upper lip. Now it seems their backsides are twitching because they're literally fighting each other in supermarket aisles for, of all things, toilet paper. People are stealing hand gel from the toilets of charity shops. People are robbing each other of things they think are going to be running out in the midst of this hype, this extraordinary panic that is spreading around the world. Now, I'm no medical expert, still less a scientist, but I do know that we breathe in millions, actually hundreds of millions, of viruses every day of our lives, every day of our lives. I do appreciate that this one is particularly virulent. I do appreciate that its lethality is greater than the common cold or the influenza that we get every year. I realize that the numbers are increasing exponentially. But I have to question the way that the media is fanning the flames of hysteria and panic here and around the world. I watched football as I do every weekend. The players are not even allowed to fist bump each other before the game, although they all hug each other at the end of the game. And there's 80,000 people breathing viruses on them from the stadium crowds. It's not immediately clear what is achieved by not allowing Frank Lampard to shake the hands of Carlo Ancelotti. As a matter of fact, um, Chelsea gave them a good tanking this afternoon. But it's not immediately clear why uh, it's spreading so virulently in certain places. In the north of Italy, where the football is now being played, I understand, behind closed doors, and where whole cities, whole regions, are being placed in quarantine. The last news broadcast I heard said 11 million people in Lombardy are now in quarantine. They're not allowed to leave their place. And in Korea, the numbers are vaultingly increasing. And in Iran, where no less than two members of parliament have died, and a close advisor to the, uh, the supreme leader, uh, of Iran, Ayatollah Khamenei, has also expired. China seems to be on top of the problem. The number of new cases in China is falling, but it's rising, uh, as I say, at quite a rate uh, around the rest of the world, including here in Britain, where the British government seems to have made no real preparation for anything at all, beyond telling people to self-isolate themselves uh, or get along to a hospital where they're already treating people on trolleys and where there's absolutely no spare capacity. And if you happen to work in a place, I suppose like me, 
I can't self-isolate because if I don't show up, I don't get paid. And that's the case for millions of people in Britain. And then there's the United States of America, where there's no health service at all. And where the candidate who is running to institute a national health service in the United States is being caricatured as a Russian agent. Although he's Jewish, caricatured as an anti-Semite. He's being caricatured as too old for the job when his only remaining rival literally cannot string a sentence together or even properly deliver his own name. The cognitive challenges of Joe Biden will be under the microscope with my colleague Rachel Blevins from RT America in just a few minutes. What's going to happen now on Super Tuesday, which happened actually not to work out in quite the way the media spun it. First of all, there are real challenges and arguments and question marks about just how well Joe Biden actually did do on Super Tuesday. In the exit poll in Massachusetts, for example, uh, he um, was 5%, a full 5% behind what he actually got in the ballot box. And voter suppression amongst young black people in Texas is now a thing. Guess what? Young black people in Texas were almost all of them there to vote for Bernie Sanders. But even if you accept that the results delivered by Super Tuesday are as they were reported to be, it's neck and neck effectively between Sanders and Biden. And so people will remorselessly focus on these cognitive challenges and the creepy, sleepy behavior uh, of Joe Biden. And people who say it's not very nice, uh, people who say it's, it's exploitative and so on, well, obviously, in ordinary circumstances, they'd have a point. Nobody wants to make fun on someone with dementia. But if you're the Democratic Party and you're thinking of putting up a demented man against Donald Trump, don't ask yourself what I'm saying and doing about it. Ask yourself what Donald Trump and the big money behind him is going to do about it. Ask yourself if Donald Trump will not play with Joe Biden as the cat plays with the mouse immediately prior to killing and eating it. That's the image you have to keep in your mind. It was, as I said, kicking off in Idlib last week until the talks between President Putin and President Erdogan of Turkey took place in Moscow. A new arrangement was reached. Will it hold? Will it solve the problem of the bastion, the last bastion of the head-chopping, throat-cutting Islamist barbarians who are holed up in Idlib under Western as well as Turkish uh, protection? Uh, we'll be asking Marwa Osman, an expert on the area, on the region, uh, about that later in the show. I think I told you we'll have Dr. Ranjit Bra. And guess what? We're about to do a spin-off show called Moats Medic and Dr. Ranjit, who's the 21st century answer to Dr. Kildare. Didn't he look handsome in his scrubs? We hope that he'll do a regular Moats Medic show uh, for us that we'll spin off 
of the main Moats vehicle. Thinking of doing one on football too, Moats football, hosted by yours truly. And my old pal Ron Mackay, nobody knows more about football than he and I put together. Partly because we're about 120 years old between us. And we'll be talking as well as about the American elections, as well as coronavirus, as well as the situation in Syria, about the deadly outcome of the third Israeli general election this year. Despite the hype, Netanyahu lost. He still does not have a majority. He is still indicted. He is still facing prison time, but he's still trying to be the prime minister of Israel. What could possibly go wrong? Of course, the fact that the election was fought between two men, Benny Gantz and Benjamin Netanyahu, who are the closest thing to Tweedledee and Tweedledum that I've ever seen running against each other in a political election uh, is, of course, a part of the problem. But we'll be talking to the greatest living Israeli, to the doyen of Israeli writers and journalists. Gideon Levy of Haaretz is the man, the bravest man in Israel, the clearest man in Israel, and there's nothing he doesn't know about Israeli politics. But there are other aspects to the show this week. I'm going to start a, a paper uh, review, what the papers say. That's a new uh, item that will appear on the show. Later in the show, I'm going to launch the Moats Book Club. I'm going to announce and talk briefly about a book, and four weeks from now, we are all going to discuss it. And I hope that you will get the book one way or another. You'll borrow it from the library or you'll read it online or you'll get yourselves a copy so we can have an informed discussion about it. That'll be coming up in the final hour. And just to give you a heads up, the book I've chosen to kick off the Moats Book Club is The Ragged Trousered Philanthropist, a book that made a very great impact indeed on me. So lots of new features as well as the old reliable tweets and emails and, above all, phone calls from you. So, it's going to be a terrific show, as well as the Hall of Fame and the Wall of Shame, of course. Let me tell you that tonight is a little bit controversial. This is the College of Knowledge. It's the Open University of the Airwaves. It is the mother of all talk shows. Radio Sputnik. Tune in every Wednesday to Loud and Clear with Brian Becker and John Kiriakou for a regular segment called Beyond Nuclear, where Brian and John discuss nuclear issues, including weapons, energy, waste, and the future of nuclear technology in the United States with Kevin Camps, the radioactive waste watchdog at the organization Beyond Nuclear. Listen on Wednesdays right here on Radio Sputnik. Want to talk? Get in touch with us at radio at sputniknews.com. Well, Donald Trump doesn't have to do much these days except play golf, and he seems to do that every other day because the Democrats are eating each other alive. <coughs> the uh, big field that started out the Democratic uh, primary process is now down to two. Well, it's actually down to three but they're determined to keep the third wheel off the track. That is Tulsi Gabbard, who qualified to be in the next debate in Arizona. 
But despite being a woman, despite this being International Women's Day, despite the fact she's a woman of colour, where colour and race is a big issue in the contest, they've decided to change the rules again. Remember, they changed them to let Michael Bloomberg on. Now they've changed them to keep Tulsi Gabbard off. It was supposed to be toe-to-toe, -to -toe, but Joe Biden, for understandable reasons, doesn't want to stand through, through a debate with Bernie Sanders. He's insisting on sitting down. He wants it to be more sedate, as befitting the seniority of both men. Will it work? What is going to happen in the Democratic primary, and what will happen if it's Joe Biden up against the ferocious tigerish Donald Trump. Who better to ask than my wonderful colleague at RT America. I'm on that show uh, in question on RT America every single night, uh, Monday to Friday at 5 p.m. London time. And I often catch the reports, which are splendid, from my colleague Rachel Blevins, who joins me now. Rachel, always a pleasure to talk directly to you. We, we sometimes appear on screen more or less at the same time, but I'm never able to, as it were, reach out uh, to you. So I'm grateful for you coming back on the show. Tell us, please, first of all, what the state of play in the Democratic Party is now. Well, first, thank you so much for having me back on. And here we are talking about the 2020 election once again. And as you noted, it started out with this really big field of players. And now all of a sudden we have just three left. Right. So it's, can you hear me now? Is that? I can't hear Rachel. Uh, I don't know if you can, but uh, let's cut this uh, now because uh, there's no point if I can't hear her. There's a poll up on the wall. Will you be panic buying? A, toilet paper. B, hand gel. C, nothing at all. I'm amazed at this. I don't know what's happened to Britain. People fighting each other over toilet paper. So what's your uh, pick? What will you panic buy? Uh, it's a bit pejorative. What will you be buying, stocking in? A, toilet paper. B, hand gel. C, Nothing at all. You can vote on that on my uh, Twitter feed. So while we're trying to get Rachel back, let me ruminate on the United States uh, of America. President Trump, you know, is so in control of events that not only did the Democrats launch their cockamamie attempt to impeach him on the bogus subject of the uh, Ukraine gate, the phone call, uh, the attempt to bludgeon, browbeat the Ukrainian government into uh, investigating the activities of Joe Biden's son, uh, who, with no experience whatsoever of oil and gas, no experience whatsoever of Ukraine, landed himself a multi-million dollar a year job with an oil and gas company in the Ukraine. That was unconnected, of course, with the fact that his father was the Vice President of the United States at the time. And if you believe that, I've got a bridge here in London that I can sell you. But having launched that cockamamie attempt and totally failed, as was entirely predictable that they would, the Democrats have now gotten themselves into the situation where it's probably, in bookmaker's terms, more likely than not 
that Joe Biden will be the candidate that they put up against Donald Trump in November. The president must be rubbing his hands with glee. Because not just Joe Biden's cognitive difficulties, not just his sleepy, creepy ways, but he is a creature of the very swamp which Donald Trump trounced last time. He is practically a member of the household of the Clintons and the Obamas. The very swamp that was rejected in key states, especially, uh, by the people of the United States in 2016. He's voted for everything that beggared those states. He voted for, was an architect of, the NAFTA. He, therefore, was an architect of the de-industrialization of states like Michigan, Wisconsin, Virginia, and so on, that were the reason why Trump got elected in the first place. He supported the Iraq war that Bernie Sanders endlessly proselytized against. And he's involved in some of the murkiest parts of recent modern American democratic history. Let's see if we've got uh, Rachel back. Have we got her? Yes, Rachel. Sorry for that. I don't know what happened. I couldn't hear you here in the studio. Uh, let's start again. What's the state of play in the Democratic Party? Right, so we just survived our big Super Tuesday number of primaries no. here in the United States, which is known because it has a number of delegates at play. And the media will tell you that Joe Biden came out as the big winner of that, not only because he was the one who received the largest number of delegates, but also because we saw other candidates dropping like flies right around Super Tuesday and giving their support to Joe Biden, whether it was Amy Klobuchar, Mike Bloomberg, or Pete Buttigieg, all of them, all of these candidates who got into the race because they probably looked at the Democratic Party. They knew that Joe Biden was the establishment favorite going into it. But at the same time, they knew that the odds are not in his favor if he goes up against Donald Trump. So they decided to throw their hat in the ring. And now all of a sudden they're dropping out and they're throwing their support behind Biden specifically over Bernie Sanders. Now, Elizabeth Warren did drop out. She didn't give an endorsement, which by her not endorsing Sanders, that also gives it right to Joe Biden. And that seems to be the state of things right now. But at the same time, the big question ultimately comes down to the debates as we see them coming, especially if Joe Biden goes up against Donald Trump. Is that something he's going to be able to handle even before any of those primary votes are cast? Well, I, unfortunately, I didn't hear any of that, Rachel, but the audience did, which is more important. But uh, uh, it makes me need to apologize to you if I ask you something now that you've just dealt with. Uh, the Tulsi Gabbard uh, angle. Tulsi Gabbard is the only one of the remaining candidates with an absolutely distinctive foreign policy. Bernie Sanders' foreign policy is better than Joe Biden's, but Tulsi Gabbard's is better than both of them put together. Would that be the real reason why they didn't want to have her on the platform in the debates because they don't want the, the bipartisan, uh, effective bipartisan U.S. foreign policy to be shredded by Tulsi Gabbard. 
Absolutely. I think that's the reason, and especially when you look at Tulsi Gabbard, you would think that she would almost be the shining star of the Democratic Party. She's a woman. She's multiracial. She served this country as a veteran. And so she has all of these things going for her. But at the same time, her foreign policy is what really gets her in trouble because she is the one candidate who has said that she will take on the military industrial complex and has said that she will fight to end the endless wars, literally, as that's something that Donald Trump has said, but Gabbard is one of those people who you know that she would fight it tooth and nail because she has served in those wars and she knows what it's like to be on the ground. And so you would think that she would be someone that the Democratic Party would be proud of, but instead she's someone that they have constantly shut out and they have constantly said, oh, we want a woman president, we want a minority president, but not you, Tulsi Gabbard. And they especially don't seem to want her on the debate stage this time around because it's down to just Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden. And they know that because there are enough similarities between Tulsi Gabbard and Bernie Sanders, if they go up against Joe Biden, they are going to tear him apart for his support for the Iraq war and for everything that he did when he was in office as vice president under Barack Obama. And for all of those places where the Obama administration promised that they would end the Afghanistan war, that they would end the Iraq war. And then they went into Syria and started a whole new number of problems there, which the United States is still dealing with today. And so the DNC is looking at this, and they absolutely know that if they let Tulsi Gabbard up on that debate stage with Bernie Sanders and with Joe Biden, then Joe Biden is not going to fare well at all. And I think that's what it all comes down to when they are suddenly changing the debate rules once again after they already changed them to allow Michael Bloomberg in in the first place. Exactly. Um, the, perhaps it was the fact he was ready to spend half a billion dollars that uh, persuaded them. Uh, now, again, you may have answered this in your first answer. Forgive me if you did. But what now of Elizabeth Warren? She ran as a progressive candidate, though I never found her all that persuasive in that guise. I liked her better when she was a Republican in the 1990s. Uh, who is she going to endorse? Or is she sitting out in the hope of being offered something like, say, the vice presidency uh, nomination before she pitches one way or the other? Well, I think you've got it right there that she may be waiting for the offers to come to her before she gives those endorsements. And a lot of people have said that they really wanted Elizabeth Warren to endorse Bernie Sanders because if she's labeling herself as a progressive candidate, then who better to go for than the more progressive candidate Where when you're looking at Sanders versus Biden. But she hasn't given an endorsement yet. And by not doing that, she's almost giving more credit to Joe Biden by taking a step back and saying that she She's not going to endorse Bernie Sanders because the DNC knows that if she did that, then all of those voters who looked at her and who said, well, she's a woman, she could be the first woman president, then their support could likely go to Bernie Sanders, and that would be bad for the DNC. And so it's unclear yet exactly what she's going to do, but at the same time, I do think if she gets an offer from one of those candidates saying that she could be their vice president, then that may help her make that decision. Now, uh, let me turn to President Trump. Uh, it's plain sailing for him internally vis-a-vis -vis the Democrats at this moment. But he does have a couple of sharks in the water, doesn't he? One of them is the impact on the stock market uh, of the coronavirus, which has seen share prices tumbling. 
and the other is the total failure of the United States to prepare properly for the arrival of this virus, even in the many weeks uh, since it broke in January, uh, the United States looks hopelessly incapable of dealing with it. They're even keeping people locked up on cruise ships, not allowing them ashore even to go into quarantine just to keep their numbers down. But it's not working. The numbers are spreading. The U.S. health service is a, a pitiful excuse for a health service. Donald Trump's smile might be wiped to the other side of his face by corona. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, if you look at Donald Trump's Twitter feed, you see that he is just enjoying everything that's going on with the DNC right now because he knows that either Bernie Sanders is the nominee, which is what he doesn't want to happen, or Joe Biden is the nominee. And there will be a lot of accusations of the DNC doing exactly what they did in 2016, which is to change up the rules just enough so that their candidate is the one who ends up being the ultimate nominee. And so Trump is loving what's happening with that right now. But he's also using that to distract from exactly what's happening here in the United States right now, which is that we are a country as a country are not prepared for the coronavirus. We're not prepared for a major outbreak. And you saw Trump. He comes in and he says, oh, well, Vice President Mike Pence is going to be in charge of these efforts, which essentially means that Pence is going to give some really great speeches talking about how the United States is prepared. But at the end of the day, the country as a whole is not prepared for a virus like this to spread. And as you saw, China has constantly come up with new ways to deal with it, new ways to combat it based on the virus and based on how it's spreading. And that's something we're just not seeing here in the United States. And there is a lot of concern from average everyday Americans because what we see in the media is we see all of these new cases. Here specifically in Washington, D.C., where I live, I've seen there's a number of new cases around the area. There's a new case in D.C. And all of a sudden they're saying that there was someone with the coronavirus who attended to the CPAC convention last week. And there's a number of reports of people saying, uh-oh, they have this virus, but there's not nearly as many reports saying this is what's happening, this is how to combat it, and this is what everyday Americans should do. Instead, we're just getting some really great speeches from the top down instead of being able to be secure in the fact that this is a government that can handle this if it comes to the point where it's spreading all across the country. Uh, Donald Trump may well have, in fact, did shake the hands of the man at the CPAC uh, conference, the Conservative Action Committee, uh, the person who's gone down with coronavirus from that conference uh, actually shook Donald Trump's hands. It's not impossible uh, that Donald Trump himself will get it. What is clear enough is that with the vagaries of the US healthcare system, which ironically is Sanders' strongest electoral talking point, uh, if the virus spreads uh, in, a, in a serious way in the United States, uh, you may well end up as the country suffering most uh, from this virus. And the impact already uh, on the economy is clear, certainly the impact on the, uh, on, on the stock market, on the share prices. But Mike Pence in charge of it? It doesn't inspire much confidence, does it? 
Absolutely not. And I think that that's going to be a really big player going into the 2020 election, especially, as you said, when you have a candidate like Bernie Sanders, who has wanted to shake up the health care system. He's wanted to make changes that will impact everyday Americans. We're not seeing those same promises and guarantees from Joe Biden moving forward. And especially when we're in a case where if you get on Twitter, you see all of these new reports of coronavirus. You also see all of these crazy, ridiculous videos of Joe Biden and his nonsense day in and day out. And that is what voters are getting from him. And so even in the cases where they're looking at Donald Trump and they're saying, okay, he doesn't seem to have a real plan for this. They're looking at Joe Biden and they're saying, well, he can't even get through a regular speech. And then they're looking at Bernie Sanders and they're seeing someone who has had a comprehensive health care plan that he's had for decades that he's been trying to implement, that could be a case where it sways a lot of voters, especially as they're looking at something that not only impacts the stock markets here in the U.S., but that also impacts all of our health moving forward. Well, uh, it could be a, a most peculiar form of karma uh, that the people who defended the status quo uh, of the American health care system are uh, going to be up against a man, maybe, uh, who has an alternative just at the very moment when a pandemic is sweeping through the United States, showing up all the holes in the U.S. healthcare system. Absolutely. I think that's a really good way to put it. And no matter if, you know, there are a number of Americans who may support single payer health care. There are a number of Americans who wish that there was more, that there were just different changes made to it than what is happening right now and all of the pitfalls that we've seen with it. But I think that really could come to the head, especially as we see this virus that doesn't look like it's going anywhere anytime soon and that is spreading across the country here in the U.S. Let me ask then, finally, Rachel, and I'm grateful for your time. It's a sensitive matter. Uh, nobody likes, you know, making fun of, of the demented. Uh, many people have known elderly relatives that have dementia. Uh, but if, as I suspect, between now and November, more and more examples uh, of the, let's call them cognitive difficulties to be kindest uh, of uh, Biden uh, begin to be more and more manifest. Can the Democrats really go into the election with Joe Biden? Mightn't they have to perform some kind of emergency procedure uh, and simply impose someone else? Well, especially whenever you see all of the issues that Joe Biden is having just right now, where he's just giving campaign speeches, he's not even really, really getting into the meat of the debates, especially against someone like Donald Trump. It does make you wonder, is he all that the DNC has to offer? I mean, when Joe Biden was vice president and Barack Obama was the president, he was known as crazy Uncle Joe. People knew him for saying ridiculous things. They knew him for being not all there in the head to a certain extent as far as his policy policies went, and that wasn't even with serious health issues. So now that we're looking at all of these speeches that he's giving, all of these areas where he's mixing people up, where he's mixing up phrases, where he is clearly struggling, it does raise a lot of questions about, is this really the best that the DNC has to offer in terms of their chosen establishment candidate? And it creates a lot of concerns for voters. Is he someone that they're going to be able to put their stock in? And so I don't know what that looks like for them if he is 
the chosen nominee and then simply isn't able to carry it out. But it does raise a lot of concerns, especially when you look at the Democratic Party that is supposed to be the party of minorities. It's supposed to be the party of the lower class of people here in this country who are struggling. They constantly count themselves as being the party as those, whereas the Republican Party is supposed to be the party of the rich white man. That's simply not what we're seeing here, especially when you're looking at someone who is supposed to be representing all of those Democrats. And yet not only is he struggling so much himself, but he also can't relate to all of them. So it's going to be really interesting to see if the DNC is going to hold on to Biden. And it looks like they are so much so that it could not only cost them the 2020 election, but it could do so in an incredibly embarrassing way. Rachel Blevins, thanks for helping us through that. Sorry about the technical difficulty in the beginning. Rachel Blevins, my colleague from RT America, talking about the travails of the Democratic Party and of America. Now, uh, every week for RT, I perform a short, which are now reaching record-breaking numbers because they're pushed out all over the world. This week, it was on Idlib, Erdogan and President Putin. Take a look. President Erdogan is weaponizing the misery of millions of refugees in Syria. Ignoring the history of Napoleon and even Adolf Hitler, President Erdogan is making war on two fronts. He's fighting the West and the East, both at the same time. Let's start with the West. They gave him billions and billions of euros to solve their refugee crisis by imprisoning millions of refugees inside Turkey. He's banked the money and he's burst open the gates. Greece and Italy, two of the poorer countries in the European Union these days, both of them broken by neoliberal austerity policies, are being left as the dumping ground for Britain, the United States, France, and other European countries' crimes. He's making war on the East by his madcap adventure in Syria, imagining that he can extend in a kind of sultanate the Ottoman Empire into Syria itself, seeking effectively to annex the Idlib province, which would be bad enough, except he's trying to annex it to keep it as a base camp for ISIS and Al-Qaeda and the alphabet soup of Islamist barbarism and extremism. He is harboring some of the worst throat-cutting, head-chopping criminals in the world so that later they can be used in another war against Damascus, against President Assad. In doing so, he comes inevitably, ineluctably, into conflict with Russia, which after all these years of standing by its ally is not going to allow that to happen. Thus, Russia and Turkey, a member of NATO, are now toe-to-toe, -to -toe, gun to gun, jet to jet, tank to tank, inside Syria itself. Once upon a time, I should confess, I was an admirer of President Erdogan. He seemed to promise the ability to solve Turkey's internal problem 
with the 20% or so of its citizens of Kurdish nationality, ethnicity, or origin. He seemed to believe, in the words of his then foreign minister, Davutoglu, in no quarrels with the neighbors. And Turkey's economy was vaultingly successful, its growth rate even higher than China's. Now the economy is in free fall. There are quarrels, no, wars with all of the neighbors, including the ancient neighbor of Greece, and his war against his own Kurdish minority has begun again. How foolish I was to imagine that Erdogan was the answer to Turkey's long, century-long conflict of identity. Was it a country of the East? Was it a country of the West? Now it's at war with East and West at the same time. The meeting in Moscow between President Putin and President Erdogan may have begun some sense permeating Turkish policy towards Syria. We must hope that it's the first in a series of meetings that changes the situation on the ground. But any solution which leaves Erdogan occupying Syria and harboring ISIS and Al-Qaeda militants there is no solution at all. Every country needs to join together to snuff out and forever the existential threat posed by ISIS and Al-Qaeda and their fellow cutthroats. Nobody should be arming them, financing them, proselytizing for them, and least of all, giving them sanctuary. Have something to say? Do you disagree with George? Then call us now and give us your view. Now, uh, by all means, uh, let me know what you think of that or indeed uh, what you've heard already on the show. You can call us from the UK on 02077 982255. If you're in the US, call 001757744480. Or, of course, you can tweet uh, your uh, your contribution in. Uh, a number of people have made comments. I think these are from YouTube. Matt Berry uh, on the book club issue says, read Confessions of an Economic Hitman. I have. It's a good uh, book. I may do. Uh, Syndicate says, The Great French Revolution by Petr Kropotkin. Steve Brindle says, I read The Ragged Trousered Philanthropist as a 16-year-old and it made me a lifelong socialist. And at 66 years of age, my belief that socialism is the hope of humanity has only grown. And Vriathos Shepherd Ducks says, for American viewers, you forgot to ask if we will be panic buying firearms and ammunition. We are quite a rumbunctious bunch. That's a very good point. Uh, Pat Brannigan says 30,000 people a year on average die of the flu in the US. And the flu makes more people sicker than the stupid coronavirus cold. And Kylo Scott says, Bernie is a Zionist, but not Zionist enough for some real Zionists. Therefore, they've branded him a self-hating Jew. And Jigo Bernie, one of the wisest men out there, he says, Gabbard too respected as a female veteran. That's an armed forces veteran. In fact, she's still a serving reservist. Uh, to allow her to be platformed by the bipartisan establishment in any foreign policy debates. And Debs says, I'd love to see Tulsi in the debates calling out Biden's record 
But let's face it, Tulsi's best state so far was New Hampshire, where she got 3.3%. That's true, Debs. But the rules were, if you had any delegates, you were in the debate. And she's got delegates, and she's been pushed out of the debate. Now, what the paper says, this is a new uh, feature. Uh, I'll rattle quickly through a few of the stories that caught my eye. It turns out that the Sunday Express is not just still coming out, as I often joke in a question, uh, but it's actually rather good. Now owned by the Daily Mirror, of course, uh, but it's actually rather good. And I'm highlighting their story on page 11. It's a very, very important one. It says, the woman wanted over Harry death, that's Harry Dunn, the young boy, teenager, who was mown down by an American woman, Anne Sakulas, driving up the wrong side of the road she was, mown down and killed before she fled the country, claiming diplomatic immunity, though she had no diplomatic immunity. Or rather, at least in the status reported, she had no diplomatic immunity. But this headline is, Woman Wanted Over Harry Death Promoted by the CIA. I'll just read the first couple of paragraphs. The family of Harry Dunn hit out last night over claims that the woman who is alleged to have killed him has been promoted by the CIA. Insiders say American Anne Sakulas, a fluent Russian speaker, is now in charge of a hundred strong overseas section based at the agency's headquarters at Langley, Virginia, which monitors foreign activity. Now, just ask yourselves this. We were told that she was in England merely as the spouse of an American official based in uh, an American military base, which describes itself as a Ministry of Defense base, a British military base, but it's really an American one. A Russian-speaking specialist, so important to the CIA that she's now heading a 100-strong team in Langley, Virginia. Was that why she was spirited out despite what she'd done? Was that why she was able to claim she had diplomatic immunity? What was Ansakoulas actually doing in England? at the time she killed poor Harry Dunn. Why isn't anyone in Parliament asking that question? Why isn't anyone in the media except the Sunday Express investigating this question? Could she have had anything to do with important stories that relate between Britain and Russia? Was she working on her anti-Russian portfolio whilst in England, if she was, no wonder they got her out of the country uh, so very quickly. The tattered old rag that is the observer, the pro-war observer, is scarcely worth reading, except for this story on the front page. Slee's watchdog probes Johnson's holiday. Parliament's Slee's watchdog has launched an investigation into Boris Johnson and the mystery of who funded his recent luxury Caribbean holiday. This is a very interesting story because Boris Johnson recorded 
that this 15,000 pound holiday that he took had been provided to him by David Ross, the former deputy chairman of Carphone Warehouse, which would have been a rum thing for a prime minister to accept in any case. But Mr. Uh, 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 Ross of Carphone Warehouse promptly denied that he had paid for Boris Johnson's holiday. And therefore, we don't know who paid for his holiday. We do know that the British Prime Minister has lied to the parliamentary authorities in claiming that Mr. Ross paid for it. If not lie, at least materially mislead. Could have been unintentional. But why isn't he taking steps to correct the record? If Ross didn't provide the 15,000 pound holiday in the Caribbean for the British Prime Minister, who did pay for it? Could be anybody. I don't know. Could be the Russians. Could be anybody at all. The British people deserve to know that. And if Parliament is at all worthy of the name Parliament, it better get to the very root of that story very quickly. I can almost not bear to look at and touch the observer. It disgusts me. Uh, Simon Tisdall, who disgusts me, in a foreign affairs commentary which disgusted me, says Idlib's shoddy ceasefire won't end the war or the suffering of millions. You see, the pro-war observer loves war. It loved the Iraq war. It backed the Iraq war. And it loves the war in Syria. It doesn't want the war in Syria to end. And anything that is done that brings a close to the suffering and dying in Syria is something of which they do not approve. So this charlatan who has for 10 years now nearly proselytized in favor of the murder and mayhem going under the name of rebellion and revolution in Syria. For the last decade nearly, he has been doing it. He wants it to continue. And what he calls a shoddy ceasefire is one that might actually lead to the government of Syria taking back control of the territory of Syria. Heaven forfend. Better that a Turkish president should occupy Syria. Better that ISIS and Al-Qaeda and the cutthroats and head choppers should rule Idlib. Better that the Americans should go on stealing the oil of Syria. Anything would be better for Tisdal than Syria actually becoming, again, a united country. Uh, now, uh, lastly, the uh, mail on Sunday. This story almost has to be categorized as literally unbelievable. Prince Andrew, the friend of pedophiles, the friend of sex traffickers, has hired as his lawyer to stop any American attempt to extradite him to face questioning in the Epstein affair is hired the lawyer who previously fought to keep the Chilean dictator Augusto Pinochet 
from facing justice. That's right. Claire Montgomery, QC, is now the brief of Prince Andrew. Just remember, Claire, that Prince Andrew's close is no longer an address, it's a public health warning. I'll do more papers uh, next time. Uh, I've got to press on uh, this time. Uh, the What the papers say will be a regular feature and not just uh, English papers either. We'll try and get early editions uh, of European and North American papers uh, to uh, discuss. Let's take a quick call, first of the evening, from my old friend Fra in Belfast. Go ahead, Fra. Good evening, George. Thank you for taking the call, buddy. Welcome. George, I'm not, uh, I'm, thank you very much. I'm not an expert on Syria now, but I, I have been following what's happening, and I do believe that Erdogan's Turkish uh, illegal occupation of Syria uh, is, is kind of time-constrained because it was a failure to implement the Sochi Agreement, I believe, yeah. And the failure to open up the two main highways, is it the M4, the M4 and the, and the, M5, and the yeah. M5, exactly, which led to the Syrian Arab Republic through the Syrian Arab army trying to reclaim Idlib in the name of uh, the so sovereign national uh, people and government of Syria. And, you know, from what seemed to appear to happen in Moscow, uh, they, Turkish and Erdogan appear to have been given almost a stay of execution, no pun intended. They, they appear to have six months now, if I read that situation correctly, yeah. to remove the terrorist occupation of Idlib and by extension, I assume, the Turkish military presence. So, you know, it's time uh, for perhaps both the Turks, if they don't intend leaving, to, to re-gather uh, their forces in Idlib but also an opportunity for the Syrian Arab army to be reinforced from their allies in Lebanon and Iran, and most importantly, Russia. So we could find ourselves back in six months' time where we were last week with another allied push against the terrorist occupation of Idlib. Well, that's right. And a lot of people uh, have been critical of Russia for... Uh, backing off. Backing off. That's the uh, exactly. that's the phrase. But Russia, of course, has uh, big, bigger uh, geopolitical mm. considerations. It's not a small matter uh, for Russia to go to war with a NATO member, uh, Turkey. Uh, I personally think that softly, softly, catchy monkey, uh, and that the uh, presidency uh, of Putin uh, will succeed in somehow guiding this ship back into port, in otherwise Idlib, back uh, into the Syrian Arab Republic. But one thing is for sure. Uh, as a result of the talks in Moscow this week, fewer people will die in mm -hmm. Idlib than would have died if they hadn't happened. Fra, thanks uh, for the call. Jim is in Colorado on Biden. Go ahead, Jim. Uh, hi, George. Uh, pleasure to talk with you. And you, sir. Um, this, this week, uh, Jimmy Dore <clears throat> on a show had like a 20-minute uh, uh, segment on Joe Biden's 1988 run for the presidency. And this is when he uh, uh, plagiarized Neil Kinnock. Yeah. He not lied about his law school record. 
Not, yeah. not many people find <laughs> Neil Kinnock their first port of call when it comes to plagiarism. <laughs> and the, well, I guess it wasn't his first because he had plagiarized a law school paper and then wound up getting an F in it. <laughs> he right. lied about his standing in, 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 in where he graduated in, in law school. He lied about the number of undergraduate degrees he had and just... You know, and this thing. Maybe was, he just forgot. Maybe, maybe it wasn't <laughs> a lie. Maybe just he forgot. Maybe, maybe well, this uh, senility. Maybe this senility <laughs> set in way, way back. That's right. <laughs> and since then, and since then, he's gone on to say that he was arrested with uh, Nelson Mandela. <laughs> and it's it's just insane. And, and Jimmy Dore made the point: is if he has this then Trump's people have this. Of course. Okay. And, more. <laughs> and you're going to see and it a hundred times. Yeah, and more. And the Republicans... I... Go ahead, George. No, as I put it, uh, uh, Trump's going to play with him like the cat plays with the mouth before the mouth. it kills it. <laughs> sure. The Republicans actually said that if, if he's the nominee, they're going to start hearings about Hunter Biden's little adventure in the Ukraine. Also. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So this should he's be entertaining. All, he's got all these skeletons in his closet, yet he's the last man standing. He's the person that the DNC are relying on to stop the socialist Bernie Sanders from being the nominee. Which goes to show, Jim, yeah. there's literally nothing they won't do to stop Bernie Sanders. If they're prepared to put uh, stake the whole of America's future... Uh, on Joe Biden, then they're prepared to stop at nothing. Of course, because they, they, they don't want, they'd rather have Trump as president because they're taking money from the same people, the, the, the Democratic establishment, the banksters, you know, the, the medical insurance companies. I think, I think they don't care. The number one object is to stop burning, not defeat Trump. Are they going to succeed, Joe? Uh, is there any chance now of Bernie winning? Uh, I don't. I don't know. It's going to be tough. What I was thinking is what the uh, president of Mexico did is he named a cabinet um, prior, you know, you know, during the elections, be, before waiting to be elected. Yeah. And those people went out and and campaigned for him. So they need a lot of people out there hammering away about health care and things like that. So if he could get put together a cabinet, like if he took Tulsi Gabbard for secretary of state something like that, and, and a number of people had these people out there who were, who were decent and popular, uh, that may uh, get him. And, of course, the states that, that haven't been um, had primaries yet are states that Hillary thought she was going to win, like Michigan, but lost. And those are key states because Biden took all these southern states. And, and like the woman from RT said, she did, he didn't really have as big a night as, as people were saying. You know. No, that's a that's uh, a fact. Uh, it was a media yeah. spin that made it uh, look that way. But it seemed to me that the only chance Bernie had of stopping the DNC from cheating him was to win so big uh, in uh, in these primaries and caucuses uh, that uh, it would just look like too big a crime for the DNC to perform. And that so far has not happened. Yeah, if he's close, then. Um Close isn't good enough. He's no. really got to stomp him. Now, and, uh, one last question while I've got you, Jim. Um, sure. What's trending at the moment is uh, Biden-Harris, uh, that uh, Joe is going to offer Kamala Harris 
uh, a woman of color from California, a very controversial prosecutor uh, who was in the primaries and dropped out earlier. Is that your understanding? Is that Biden's pick or could it be better or worse than that? I think I saw that on the Sputnik um, uh, webpage uh, when I was listening earlier prior to your show coming on. So that's the only place I've seen it mm. uh, so far. I haven't uh, scanned it. I have the Denver paper and I didn't see it in that. What about if he offered so Elizabeth Warren? Uh, that that could probably help. You know, I liked her at first. I, I was a Bernie person, but I liked her at first. And you know what she was pushing? She was pushing for um, enforcing the antitrust laws, which are still on the books. Okay, they didn't get rid of, like Clinton got rid of the banking regulations. Got rid They're of off the books, Eagle, but yeah. Anti- yeah, but the antitrust laws are still there, and that's when a lot of Wall Street pooped their pants, and they were coming down hard on her, and she eventually backed off talking about that yeah and so okay. if, if she you know that might be a good push for him well look I mean, jim thanks very much uh, for calling i have fond memories of colorado a uh, very beautiful state thanks very much indeed for ringing let's take the news now with emily horn curious about our curriculum have something to say then call us now to join the debate on the mother of all talk shows with george galloway every Tuesday to Loud and Clear for a regular segment called False Profits, a weekly look at Wall Street and corporate capitalism, where we talk about the big economic issues of the week from the point of view of working people, the poor, and the U.S. position in the global economy. Join us this Tuesday and every Tuesday with financial policy analyst Daniel Sankey right here on Radio Sputnik. It's time to double down with Max and Stacy. Yeah, double down. We're talking markets, finance, business, economics, ka-ching, bling, just about everything money-related on Sputnik. It's called Double Down. We're asking, are dead cats bouncing or have fundamentals changed? That's this week on Double Down. Radio Sputnik. We speak your language. Find us at SputnikNews.com. Radio Sputnik News. Italy is placing up to 16 million people under quarantine as it battles to contain the spread of coronavirus. Anyone living in Lombardy and 14 other central and northern provinces will need special permission to travel. Milan and Venice are both affected. Prime Minister Giuseppe Conti is also announcing the closure of schools, gyms, museums, nightclubs and other venues across the whole country. The measures, the most radical taken outside of China, will last until April 3rd. Italy has seen the largest number of coronavirus infections in Europe, with the number of confirmed cases jumping by more than 1,200 to 5,883, with more than 230 deaths and 36 in 24 hours. People are being told to stay at home as much as possible, and those who break the quarantine could face three months in jail. 
A total of 273 people in Britain have tested positive, with two now dead. In total, 11 people have died. Meanwhile, in the U.S., the number is now at 20. Worldwide, 107,000 have the virus, with more than 3,600 deaths. Moscow is announcing a prison term of up to five years for those who fail to self-isolate as governments around the globe are ramping up measures to stop the spread of the virus. UK supermarkets are beginning to ration essential food and household items as a result of stockpiling. Tesco, the largest, is limiting shoppers to no more than five of each of the rationed goods, including antibacterial gels, wipes and sprays, dry pasta, UHT milk and some tinned vegetables. Waitrose is introducing a temporary cap on some items on its website, including some antibacterial soaps and wipes. The high street chemist Booths is restricting sales on hand sanitizers to two per person. And at least six people are dead and 28 remain missing after a hotel being used as a coronavirus quarantine facility in the Chinese city of Changju collapsed. Rescue workers are still searching the rubble of the five-story Zingjie'er Hotel in the southern province of Fujian. 71 people were in the building when it collapsed and dozens have been rescued. It's not clear what caused the incident. The city of Chongju has recorded 47 cases of the virus, which first emerged in the city of Wuhan around 1,000 kilometers away. In other news, California Senator Kamala Harris is now endorsed Joe Biden with great enthusiasm as the Democratic Party's U.S. presidential candidate. She says Biden has served the country with dignity and claims her country needs him now more than ever. Harris, who's seen as a rising star within the party, dropped out of the presidential race in December. President Trump has also weighed into the race, accusing the Democratic Party leadership of double dealing. He tweeted saying, we have now learned for sure that the Democrats don't want anything to do with with crazy Bernie, referring to Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders. And an airstrike in Somalia has killed a senior commander of militant Islamic group Al-Shab. The U.S. issued a reward of $5 million in 2008 for information on the whereabouts of Bashir Mohammed Korgab. He was in charge of attacks on military bases and was also involved in operations in Kenya. The U.S. carries out frequent airstrikes in Somalia to target militants. It's not yet commented on the report and Korgab's family has confirmed his death. And finally, James Bond star Daniel Craig has confirmed that No Time to Die will be his last movie as 007. There are reports the British actor is considering another outing as the spy, but he's taken the opportunity to outline his intentions while hosting Saturday Night Live in the U.S. Craig's fifth Bond movie was set to hit cinemas next month, but its release has been delayed until November due to coronavirus. Well, that's all on Sputnik News. I'm Emily Horn. listening to Radio Sputnik. Telling the untold. Welcome to the Open University of the Airwaves with George Galloway. Only on Sputnik Radio. Coming up very shortly, the doyen of journalists and commentators in Israel, Gideon Levy, uh, the columnist for the Haaretz newspaper on the nine lives, really, uh, of Benjamin Netanyahu, have they finally run out? He is one seat short of a majority in the Knesset. But don't go dancing about that because the other guy isn't that much better. At least that's my point of view. We'll hear from Gideon 
the master uh, on that. We've still got this poll running uh, on the coronavirus. Will you be panic buying? Uh, toilet paper, 5%. Hand gel, 8%. Nothing at all, 87%. That's the true face of the British people. Hand gel at least has some logic. Toilet paper, they're actually fighting in the aisles about toilet paper. Here's some more comments. Uh, Erin Sky says, Bernie, we need universal health care like they have in the UK. Medicare for all. Tom Meyer says, a million dead in Iraq, murdered. I will make fun of Joe Biden and spit on his name. We owe him nothing. He's an evil man who inflicted massive suffering. And Constance Ahrens says the US has no strategic interest in Syria unless it is there to serve, serve the national interest of Israel and the Wahhabi Islam interests of the Saudis, whilst also trying to destroy Iran's only ally. Joanne Nayari Josen says healthcare in America is lacking and the coronavirus will become the biggest challenge for the Trump administration. And with Pence in charge, it doesn't install a lot of confidence. Amen to that, Joanne. And Viriathus Shepherd Ducks says the Turkish military intelligence apparatus has historically been a valuable part of American imperial interests. A neo-Ottoman empire might be useful for certain US uh, ambitions. And Aussie says, I'm reading Adults in the Room by Yanis Varoufakis, and it is great. Thanks for that, Aussie. We'll give that consideration. Proudfoots says, the DNC has no problem changing the rules to let a Republican in, but blocks the vice chair of the DNC because she doesn't toe the line. And on Twitter, Malcolm Xmas says, George, I had a demented 100-year-old aunt who believed the people on TV could see and hear us. I'd still vote for her over Joe Biden. <laughs> Cruel but true. Now, I'm joined on the line by the master, Gideon Levy of Haaretz. Gideon, welcome back onto the show. Thank you so much, George. Thank you for having me. Now, uh, the nine lives of Benjamin Netanyahu, have they finally run out? Uh, he's short of a majority. Has he given up trying? Or might he still pull something out of the hat? No, he didn't give up, but his chances uh, seem quite poor right now. And uh, the feeling is that uh, those are his last days in office, but you never know. No, not with him, definitely. And am I right in saying, if he doesn't pull it off, he's off to jail? It's hard to tell. I mean, he will end up in jail, but it might take more time. Okay, so if not he, who? Uh, what, do you, you're not really going to have four elections in one year, are you? Don't count on this. Don't count on this. But there is a fair chance that uh, his rival, uh, Benny Gantz, uh, will uh, be able to create a government. In that case, you better educate us more uh, about him. His party is the Blue and White Party, is a former military chief with a, a rather uh, controversial record in that regard. Uh, should we be partying at the prospect of Benny Gantz instead of Netanyahu? Unfortunately not, George. Not me and not you. We can't 
celebrate this because when it comes to the issues that both of us really care about, like the continuance of the Israeli occupation, the apartheid, lack of equality, lack of justice, I don't see much difference between the two. There are differences between the two, but not in the main issues that both of us care so much. Even, even when we go to character, would it not be fair to say that Gantz is a less rum character than Netanyahu? And if so, I mean, there is more blood on Gantz's hands than on Netanyahu's hands. By the end of the day, he's a general who, uh, who uh, commanded one of the more brutal operations of Israel in Gaza. And um, we can't celebrate, we can't be happy about his election. I mean, he is much more uh, clean of corruption, of, of personal corruption. He is more of an honest man, no doubt. He will put the Israeli system in a much more calm way because uh, the noises from Netanyahu, everyone is really sick and tired of. But by the end of the day, when if you'll ask me, will he do anything to put an end to the, to the occupation? My answer is definitely not. Does he have any intention to put an end to the occupation? By all means, not. What about so, the, uh, what about the uh, Kushner uh, deal of the century? Is there any hope at least that sanity will prevail and that will be, even if it's just the status quo ante, at least not as bad as implementing or seeking to uh, the Kushner peace plan? I'm so sorry to be so uh, pessimistic tonight, but uh, this is not a peace plan. This is an annexation plan. Uh, you don't make peace with yourself. You need to have a partner. The Americans totally ignored uh, the Palestinians, even didn't bother to ask their views. And by the end of the day, this plan has only one real intention, and this is to put off the table the two-state solution, to put off the table all the, the, the ambitions of the Palestinians for more justice or liberty or self-determination. Now, uh, how did the Arab uh, voters this time uh, vote? There was, uh, the last time we talked, uh, there was the possibility uh, that the Arab uh, electorate would go for Gantz and that could tip the balance. Did that happen? It's under process. First of all, they did very well in the elections and they got an unprecedented uh, result, 15 seats, you know, 15 seats out of 120. Mm. They are the third biggest party in the parliament, which is very remarkable and very impressive. The problem is that they are excluded by both sides, but uh, less by guns. But still, even he is not ready to see them as an equal partner. And therefore, it is still a long way to go. But it seems that they are going to support guns because they have something in common. And this is this ambition to get rid of Netanyahu. Yeah. <laughs> now, finally, and I'm grateful for your time always, Gideon, the, uh, the far right, I know it's, all these terms are <laughs> relative everywhere, but especially relative in Israeli politics at the moment. 
those to the right of Netanyahu, uh, the ultra-nationalists that we spoke of last time, how did they fare? I mean, quite fortunately, they did very badly because Netanyahu succeeded to convince uh, this uh, public uh, to vote for him rather than for the smaller right-wing parties, and so they did. So they were quite marginalized, and these, those are maybe the only good news from those elections. And uh, when will we know who the next prime minister will be? I believe that in the coming days, or in a very few weeks, and still, I must uh, repeat that you shouldn't exclude the possibility of false elections, even though it looks not very probable right now, but it is still on the table and it still might happen. But the, was the turnout this time less than the time before? Are people getting voter fatigue? No, this was very interesting. On the contrary, the turnout was higher than last time because people want really a decision. People thought that going to the ballots will bring a decision. But this decision didn't come because none of the, of the sides has a real clear majority. Gideon Levy, you're a gentleman and a scholar. Thank you very much indeed for joining us on The Mother thank, of thank All. Thank you, George, for having me. Appreciate Always a pleasure. It, uh, very much, uh, my dear friend. Uh, okay, when, what will you be panic buying? Toilet paper, hand gel or nothing at all? That's the poll that we have got running. It's all no change so far. Nearly 1,500 of you have voted. Toilet paper, hand gel or nothing at all? Restore my faith, will you, in the uh, British uh, people? Uh, Angela says by email. What's the email address, by the way? I should tell people. On air at moats.tv. Yeah, you got that? On air at moats.tv. Uh, Angela has emailed. A few weeks ago, I commented on moats that there was a possible question mark over the safety of some of China's building projects. The 10-day makeshift hospital was the topic in question. We now see the quarantine hotel in Quanzhou has collapsed, causing many deaths and injuries. Over to you, George. Uh, I didn't build that, Angela. I don't know anything about it. Uh, but uh, we'll ask, I promise, Dr. Ranjit, the Moats medic, uh, when he comes on uh, about that. John, you have to wonder how much research goes into these election strategies used by the political establishment. The Democrats were clearly planning to coalesce around the highest place right-wing candidate of the bunch. And they've been stuck with Joe Biden, indeed. Uh, and on Twitter, the, uh, the little voices, how funny it is when you watch a TV performance of Biden or indeed any American political figure. Does it not seem so fake? Is it not Hollywood dressed up as meaningful intentions? Anyone looked, looking upon the hysterics of US TV must realize the insincerity of it all. Uh, well, I don't know. Uh, this is the home uh, of uh, Bob Monkhouse, who famously said, once you can fake the sincerity, the rest is easy. Les Brewer says, Prince Andrew, if extradited to the USA, would be softballed in questioning and more than likely walk away scot-free anyway. Why is he trying so hard to avoid it? That's my question. And Carl Scott says, I'm, not, I'm personally not easily offended. But George, when your glasses slip, please use your index finger and not your third to push them back up. Why, Carl? 
tell me why. <laughs> Which is my index finger? This one. And I'm using the middle one. All right. My hands are absolutely clean. And I didn't need the coronavirus for that. Yinka says, the woman that killed Harry Dunn will not be brought to justice. The UK will do nothing as it's implicated in a deeper issue connected to Assange. I'm very, very suspicious now, having read the Sunday Express story about what this answer Coolis was actually doing in Britain. And Stevie G. Wiz says, keep the observer as toilet paper. Well, some of us don't need toilet paper, Stevie. We actually wash ourselves. Uh, Johnny Ruscannon says, you're one of the absolutely best voices out there, George. Much love from Sweden. Thank you, Johnny. And a big up to all our friends in Sweden. Dennis1901 says, not just the Observer, it's weekday equivalent. The Guardian loves regime change, as does the disgusting BBC. The BBC have gone into overdrive to promote attacks on acid. I was uh, attacked on Twitter this week by a BBC hack I've never heard of, literally never heard of. Even I've tried to look him up and there's nothing there, but he's a BBC hack. He attacked me for working for RT. So I let rip and said what I really think about the BBC. And 371,000 people engaged with me and 99.9% of them supported what I'd said. And I pointed out to this BBC hack, I bet you wish you'd left it alone, mate. Uh, and Mustafa Iraq says, a group of snipers with the Israeli military who took part in the suppression of peaceful protests by the Palestinians in the besieged Gaza Strip have opened up to a local media recounting the harrowing tale of how they intentionally incapacitated protesters over a time span of two years. I did read that, Mustafa, and uh, very grueling reading it was. Yinka says they can do what they want. Syria will be unified again. You know why? The people of Syria are unified regardless of their faith. Syrian national identity was something the Saudis and their allies couldn't break. And Brian Paul says, for enlightenment, I recommend reading Leo Tolstoy's non-fiction works, a man centuries ahead of his time. Well, give me some suggestions, Brian. And Yinka again says, Hunker, Hunter may not speak Ukrainian, but he certainly understands the color of the greenback. Boy, they were using Air Force Two to ship money out. You have to smile when you think of this kind of scam. It is indeed remarkable. Let me take a break. Radio Sputnik. We call Fault Lines with Nixon and Stranahan the most disruptive radio show in America. It's a great show and we have a lot of fun. We come to you live from Washington, D.C. every Monday through Friday morning. What I like best is that we bring in experts from all over the world. From Barcelona, from Egypt, from Seoul, South Korea. From Newark, New Jersey. We try to bring people great guests, great calls from our listeners, and of course, stupid jokes. 
And we do it with two hosts that have very different viewpoints. Now, here's the thing, Garland. A lot of people would think you and I would just argue. I mean, I'm a Republican Trump supporter. And, of course, I am a progressive Democrat Bernie Sanders supporter. The surprising thing is how much we actually agree on. And you won't be surprised because you're going to find out just how much you agree and just how much you enjoy this show. The mother of all talk shows. Join our faculty of legends, contributors, and callers. Everyone is welcome. Was the week that was. It was on this day in 1972 that a bomb exploded above uh, abroad aboard a Transworld Airlines Boeing 707 at Las Vegas Airport. No one was injured in the blast, which destroyed the cockpit of the aircraft as it stood empty on the tarmac. The explosion happened hours after an anonymous phone caller threatened TWA with a series of bomb attacks unless a million dollars, that's £760,000, was handed over. The caller instructed airport officials at Kennedy Airport in New York to go to a locker where they found a note which said there would be explosions at six hourly interview, intervals on four of the company's aircraft. Sniffer dogs found a bomb which consisted of three pounds for younger uh, viewers, that's 1.36 kilograms of plastic explosives and a timing advice uh, aboard a TWA aircraft in the airport in New York, 12 minutes before it was time to explode. TWA never handed over the ransom money demanded by the anonymous phone caller. Following the threats, the Nixon administration talked about introducing proposals to ban airlines from agreeing to pay ransoms to hijackers and extortionists. It was also on the 8th of March 1985 that more than 80 people died and 175 were wounded in a car bomb explosion in Beirut, Lebanon. The bomb went off outside a block of flats and close to a mosque as worshippers were gathering for Friday prayers in a densely populated Shia Muslim suburb. The bomb blew a huge crater in the street and destroyed two seven-story blocks of flats, a mosque and a cinema. Many of the dead were passers-by. Some American press reports said the CIA was behind the attack, which was meant to kill Sheikh Fadlallah. He had been accused of supporting the suicide bombers who killed hundreds of US and French troops in attacks on military barracks in Beirut in 1983, a charge he always denied. The kidnapping of, um, of uh, American journalist Terry Anderson eight days after the bomb has also been linked to the attempt on Sheikh Fadlallah's life. Going way back to 1917, it was on this day that the 1917 Russian February Revolution began in earnest with protests celebrating International Women's Day and riots in St. Petersburg as it then was and now is again over food rations and conduct of the war. A day earlier, on March 7th, 1965, state troopers and volunteer officers in the southern US state of Alabama broke up a demonstration of black and white civil rights protesters, injuring at least 50 people. They assaulted a group of about 500 demonstrators using tear gas whips whips and sticks after Governor George Wallace ordered the planned march from Selma to the state capital Montgomery 
to be halted on the grounds of public safety. At least 10 of the injured were taken to hospital with skull and limb fractures and suffering the effects of tear gas. Civil rights leader Dr. Martin Luther King organized another march there two days later. His group knelt and prayed in front of state troopers who stopped them at the Edmund Pettus Bridge, but did not attack them. Dr. King filed a federal lawsuit for the right to march on Montgomery, and on 21st March began the third and final march under the protection of federal troops. He and his supporters arrived a week later and held a rally attended by thousands. President Lyndon B. Johnson finally signed a new Voting Rights Act in August 1965 that banned discrimination in voting practices and procedures on the grounds of race or color. Just let that sink in. 1965, when the Beatles were number one in the hit parade, it was still legal in the United States to rig elections on the grounds of race or color. Some would say it hasn't entirely changed. Also on March 7th in 1988, the Irish Republican Army confirmed the three people shot dead by security forces in Gibraltar were members of an active service unit. They were alleged by the British to have planted a 500-pound car bomb near the British governor's, governor's residence. It was primed to go off during a changing of the guard ceremony, popular with tourists. The three, two men and a woman, were shot as they walked towards the border with Spain. Security officers say they were acting suspiciously and the officers who carried out the shootings believed their lives were in danger. Although initial reports made clear the three terrorists had been shot dead after planting a massive car bomb, within 24 hours, the Foreign Secretary, Jeffrey Howe, was forced to admit there had been no car bomb. And he told MPs that the three, whose security forces said were a threat to their lives, were in fact unarmed when they had been shot. On March 9th, 1967, the daughter uh, of the Soviet leader Joseph Stalin, who writes this stuff, requested political asylum at the United States Embassy in India. The American Mutual Radio Network broke the news, but the American State Department refused to comment. Since her father's death in 1953, little had been heard of the then 42-year-old Svetlana, who preferred to be known by her mother's maiden name. She had been living in a flat in Moscow near the British Embassy, working as a researcher and translator. She finally went to the United States in April 1967. And on March the 10th, 1969, the killer of Martin Luther King, James Earl Ray, if it were he, was jailed for 99 years by a court in Memphis, Tennessee, after admitting he carried out the murder of the American civil rights leader. His guilty plea was made on the understanding he was spared the electric chair. It also brought a swift end to the trial, which was more to the point, which otherwise might have lasted weeks. And if you believe that James Earl Ray, acting alone, assassinated Dr. Martin Luther King, I have a bridge here in London I could sell you going cheap. Turning to the arts, it was on this day in 1996 that Fargo, 
directed and written by Joel and Ethan Cohen, was released in the United States. It starred Francis McDormand, William H. Macy, and Steve Buscemi. Fargo and the Cohen brothers are just two of the very greatest things which ever came out of the United States. Three, because there's two brothers. And on this day in sport, 1971, Joe Frazier ended Muhammad Ali's 31-fight winning streak at Madison Square Garden, New York City, retaining his heavyweight boxing title by unanimous points decision over 15 rounds in the fight of the century. Alas, I remember it all only too well. Let's take a call from Berlin, from Shazad. Go ahead, Shazad. Hello, George. How are you? By the grace of God, I'm good. Thank you. What would you like to say? Um, yeah, so I had um, a question regarding uh, Syria. Um, I'm, I mean, first of all, I'm a big fan, so I, you know, I don't mean to uh, um, trigger you too much with the question. Doesn't take much but... to trigger me, Shazad. <laughs> Go ahead. I know that too well. <laughs> Um, yeah, uh, basically, yeah, so um, I'm living in Germany, and uh, as you probably know, uh, Germany has taken in more than 800,000 refugees, Europe in total more than a million. Um, I'm sure you see that as, uh, you know, as a very good, um, you know, as a very good uh, decision, <clears throat> but, you know, you, um, I, I think, quite quite regularly seem to, uh, you know, you call the, the Syrian opposition, you know, throat cutting, head chopping, and so on and so forth. Um, you know, and it might be true that, you know, there are groups in Idlib right now which do subscribe to such behavior, but, you know, uh, the vast majority of Syrian refugees, you know, they... Aren't they aren't those type of people? They are very much against Assad. They are they are very much against you know the um, the the regime over there. Um, you know they don't subscribe to violence and terror. You know so I believe that there is a, a sort of nuance to uh, to this. It's not either you're with Assad or you're with the extremists. <clears throat> and you know if um, you know if. If you do believe that you know that, uh, that the people in 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 Germany, the refugees, do harbor such thoughts or such you know such things, then you know I have a bridge in Berlin that I'd like to tell you. <laughs> Are there any bridges in Berlin? Anyway, Shazad, <laughs> uh, let me uh, deconstruct uh, the points that you made. First of all, I think it's entirely wrong that out of a million refugees, Germany took eight hundred thousand of them. Uh, refugees should be shared out amongst all the countries of the world. Uh, Saudi Arabia should take a few, uh, for example. Uh, and uh, the United States uh, should take rather more than they have taken. Britain should take more than they have taken. It's entirely unfair uh, that Germany has had to shoulder this burden entirely disproportionately, which has impacted on the political situation in Germany, very much to the detriment uh, of the politicians who took the decision uh, to allow such a huge number of refugees in. Secondly, many of them are not refugees. Uh, there's a very clear difference between a refugee and a migrant. 
I myself am the grandson of migrants uh, who fled their country, Ireland, to come to this country, Britain, uh, because uh, they were poor and they wanted to be just a very little bit better off. Uh, this economic migration is, of course, uh, important in the development of uh, the world, but every uh, country has a right to decide uh, where its borders uh, are to be opened uh, for migrants and where not. And it's very dangerous to confuse the two categories of economic migration and political refugees. I'm sure you know the legal situation is this, that uh, a person who can be described as a refugee must themselves individually and their family have a well-founded fear of persecution for who they are or what they are. Uh, and the great majority of the people uh, who've landed uh, on Lesbos in the Greek islands, in Greece, the great majority of the people who are standing right now at the Greek border, and the great majority of the uh, refugees in Germany are not, in fact, uh, refugees. They are economic migrants. Now, Germany took them in, actually, because Germany thought its economy would benefit from this influx of young uh, and energetic, enthusiastic uh, labor power. I'm not sure that they think that now. So every country has the right to control immigration, and every country has a responsibility to take in genuine refugees and they must do so fairly. And starting with the countries that caused the refugee flow in the first place. You see, the great majority of people now presenting at the Greek border with Turkey are not actually Syrians at all. Uh, they are from Afghanistan, from Iraq, from Libya. You'll have got my drift uh, by now. Uh, these were all countries attacked not by Greece, but by Britain and the United States. Britain and the United States attack countries, France oftentimes too, uh, but when it comes to the refugee flow, uh, which is uh, coming our way as a direct result of the devastation that the empire has uh, impacted on their country, most of the empire closes its doors and leaves it to Greece, to Italy, to a certain extent, Spain, uh, to deal with the human tide of misery uh, that comes their way. The economic migrants would be far better building up their own countries in a world of economic equilibrium. And that's what we don't have. And that's what I struggle for. So in my world, there would be no refugees because there would be no imperial wars. In my world, there would be no economic migration because there would be balance in the world economy rather than the very richest countries exploiting the very poorest countries to the extent that those who've got the legs for it flee from their own countries in order to come to our country, which of course makes it richer whilst making their original country poorer. My third point, I think third, my third point is that of course the refugees in Germany uh, say that they are anti-Assad. That's the only way they can get asylum. Of course they say they're against 
President Assad, who you describe uh, pejoratively as a regime. I wonder if you call the Saudi Arabian government a regime or whether you call every government a regime. But let me use your terminology. The only way to get asylum in a Western country, if you are Syrian, is to say that you are anti-Assad and that you cannot go home. Well, guess what? Every Syrian refugee should now return to Syria. The overwhelming bulk of the country is now safe. The Syrian Arab Republic is securely in its saddle, and that includes President Assad. And it's time to go back to Syria to rebuild it from the ruin that was left by the countries which patronized, which financed and armed and incited this Islamist fanatic uh, rebellion. My fourth point uh, is this. If you don't know that some of the people who came from Syria and other Muslim countries into European countries turned out to be desperados, then you're not following the news closely enough. It is an obvious, obvious pathway into Western countries to carry out terrorist attacks, to pretend that you're fleeing from Syria or Iraq or Afghanistan because you hate the regime there. My fifth and final point to you uh, is this. The Western attempt to destroy Syria will go down as one of the most grisly, disgusting, obscene, pornographic attempts in a long, long book of imperial crimes. I know Syria, maybe you don't. I know the Syrian people, maybe you don't. They would never have accepted to live like the Bin Ladenites in the Torah Bora. Syria is a sophisticated Levantine society of culture where men and women are equal, where Christians and Muslims are equal, where Christianity is cosseted and cherished and harbored and protected. There's no part for of any of that allowed by the people holed up in Idlib. And I want to see Idlib liberated, not for the abstract constitutional point that the Syrian Republic should control all of Syria, important though that is. I want the people in Idlib to be liberated from the head choppers and throat cutters that you're on here to defend. Let's go to Aboud in the United Arab Emirates. Go ahead, Aboud. Well, hello. Good uh, evening, I should say. Good evening, sir. Um, yeah, well, exactly your, your point is very spot on, but uh, in regards to the refugee crisis in Europe, it's, it's, it's very much harsh at this point. But uh, saying that, the UK could actually make a, a quick solution for that. Well, let's not even talk about the UK, because the incompetent uh, administration right now is even hardly doing their own things in the United Kingdom itself. The Americans, the Russians, should like at least do a safe zone that could actually protect those civilians who flee uh, the Middle East. Because Middle East, I'm living in the Middle East, for instance, right? 
and I can I can see the, the the situation here in Middle East is extremely bizarre nowadays. Now, these people, I mean, I'm not a big, I'm not trying to justify the refugee uh, crisis here, but these people have got no place to go to, uh, Mr. Gallery, obviously, and if they do remain in the Middle East, then certainly they're going to be dead. You know, this whole area has seen an intense decade of of like major killing. I mean, killing just about everywhere you go. Uh, the, the Syrian drones, let's just say, I'm not sure if they even have a drones, the Russian drones out there, the, the American, the British, the, the French, the Australian, are just about everywhere in the sky and they're bombarded. Well, most of Syria is now free of war, Abud. Well, Despite I'm, I'm the not... best efforts of your country and others like it. Well, to be honest, like I'm, I'm myself, I'm not from the United Arab Emirates. I'm, I'm obviously living here, but I'm, I'm very interested in your show, and I love. But my, my main call is obviously to focus on the deal of the century, which is the most important case on the world right now, in yeah. my view, I think. Yeah. Right. So uh, now let's alone the Syrian crisis. This is a, a different sector. But now speaking of what's happening in the. Oh, Abud. Let's let's try and get Abud back because uh, that was an important point that he was uh, he was coming uh, to. Abud, please. Abud, sorry, we were cut off. You were talking about the deal no. of the deal of the century. Go on. Yeah, yeah, George. Right. Okay. So basically, I just came back from the West Bank, right? I went to the West Bank and I just was walking around and I went to Ramallah, Bethlehem, and I went to the old city of Jerusalem. Now, Mr. Gallery, what I, what I could like seriously see in the Palestinian ground is something unreal, that this Zionist, who's what they're doing to the Palestinian civilians, is like just you know, unreal. And now what I can see is when I look at what happened, let's go back a little bit, uh, uh, back in the 12th of December when the general election in the UK happened, when they smeared Mr. Corbyn, right, because he was the only person slightly hooked for the Palestinian, I should say, right? And I've spoken to many people out there, children, kids, and everyone is suffering, like genuinely suffering, because if you leave your house from there, obviously... Once you go out in the road, there's every 700 meters is like a checkpoint. They need to, to ask you, where are you going? And if you try to be slightly cheeky with them, you're obviously getting snipers in your head. And this is something shouldn't be happening right now at the modern uh, day, obviously. Now, yeah, so uh, I was uh, talking about the, uh, the general election in the UK. when. Uh, yeah, but get to the deal of the century. Do you think it's going to survive... Uh, the departure of Netanyahu, do you think Gantz, the presumed uh, next uh, prime minister, you think he'll pick up where Netanyahu left off? Well, both of them just as bad as each other. You're going from an indicted person to a hundred times worse, which is, I mean, people often talk about Nazism, right? If there is some dictator leader anywhere across the world, then you certainly hear the Nazism slogan would kick off in anywhere in the headline, any sorts of news, because obviously people think the Nazis were bad. Yes, I 100% agree they were bad. They executed so much Jews, and God knows how, how many uh, Jews have been executed in, in, in Europe. 
But the thing is, people are turning blind eyes at what's happening in the Palestinian ground. I mean, that just shouldn't happen. This is unarmed folks. Well, look, uh, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not in second place to you in uh, crying out for the uh, suffering of the Palestinian people. But to compare what's happening there to Nazism and Hitler is completely wrong. And not just for the reason that you alluded to, that Nazism and Hitlerism literally set out to annihilate every last Jew on the earth and succeeded in annihilating six million Jews uh, in the lifetime of some people that are still alive today. That's the first reason why you shouldn't casually do it. And the second reason is whilst brutal, cruel, and completely intolerably unacceptable, the Israeli treatment of the Palestinian people does not involve the industrialized annihilation of that people. There are no concentration camps, there are no uh, gas chambers, there are no mass executions and mass murders. And it's important to keep that in perspective. I'll tell you why. Not least why is because there are people listening to this exchange right now who are hoping for a slip of your tongue or mine. It's important that we keep this in perspective. Gaza is an open air prison camp. It is not a concentration camp at one end of which are gas chambers and ovens that are going to annihilate people. The Israeli occupation of Palestine is brutal, cruel, intolerable, and the blind eye to which you refer, completely unacceptable. But it does not constitute an attempt to annihilate every Palestinian in the world. So these comparisons should not lightly be made. Thanks for your call. Uh, this is important, just come in from Brian Maquero. After the appalling conclusion given in the Grenfell Tower report, and other historic tragedies, such as Bradford City Stadium fire, a few weeks ago, Stroud District Council gave Forest Green Rovers permission to build a football stadium out of timber. The 1985 Bradford City disaster led to new safety standards in UK stadia, including the banning of new wooden grandstands. And yet here is the local authority giving planning permission for a potential death trap. It's interesting how they've sold this. They're saying it's the world's first timber wooden stadium and that it's carbon neutral. But perhaps they don't realize the reason why a timber stadium has never been built before is because it's made of timber, which is flammable, has a high risk of burning down and could be fatal to the occupants. That's an extraordinary piece of news. Now, welcome back to our old friend Marwa Osman, academic, journalist, television personality, commentator extraordinaire on what has been, by any standards, a remarkable week, Marwa, for Syria. Uh, where now stands Idlib, the Syrian effort to reclaim the last inch of their country after the talks in Moscow? Uh, between President Putin and President Erdogan. 
Well, let me begin by saying uh, the talks in, uh, between Ankara and Moscow were very much disappointing uh, for uh, Turkey, for Ankara, for uh, a number of reasons. But to begin with, what this uh, agreement was actually uh, resulting with three main points, which is uh, one, to stop See, to, to, to have a ceasefire in Idlib to stop any uh, sort of military action in, uh, in Idlib or around Idlib that involves the Turkish army. Uh, two, to start patrolling the M4 uh, highway. Uh, the M4 highway was, by the way, very close of being liberated by the Syrian Arab Army and the uh, National Defense Forces and the allies of the Syrian Arab Army before uh, the agreement uh, was made between Ankara and Moscow. And three is to uh, keep uh, the posts, quote unquote, because this is an occupation post now, it's no longer a monitoring post inside of Idlib, uh, to keep the Turkish uh, occupation posts uh, where they are right now without even saying what will happen to the posts that are now uh, being circulated. They are being encircled by the presence of the Syrian Arab army because this is where the war stopped and the agreement uh, uh, took uh, place or started. Uh, so these three points were the results of the agreement, but a lot of issues were not discussed, which are very vital, which saw the escalation and the tensions uh, happen in uh, Idlib, specifically in uh, southeastern Idlib, uh, after the full liberation of Aleppo, these couple of weeks, or actually they were they're more like 12 days that were very, very sensitive in Syria because of the direct contact between the Syrian Arab army and the Turkish occupation forces for the first time. Now, let me be clear by why I'm saying occupation, because it's Syrian land, so under international law, this is Syrian land, Syrian sovereignty being occupied by a nation or by a, sov uh, by a foreign uh, troops and by foreign soldiers that were not invited by the Syrian uh, government in any way or form. And they are aiding terrorist organizations deemed terrorists, not only by the Syrian government and its allies, but also by the West that is supposedly against the Syrian government. This is why I'm using this term. Now, when we talk about uh, uh, why uh, this was a disappointing agreement, I'd like to point out the very important points that were not, uh, maybe they were spoken of during the agreement, but we didn't see any of them mentioned, being mentioned in the results was one, What's with the patrolling of the M4, six kilometers to the north, six kilometers to the south, patrolling it for whom? The M4 is particularly right now in the hands of the terrorist organizations. So are we patrolling to safeguard these terrorists or are we actually patrolling to take them out? No one said what's going to happen there. Two, no one said a thing again about the posts of the Turk, the Turkish military posts inside of Idlib that are now being encircled by the Syrian Arab army. Are they going to remain as is? Are they going to pull out with Russian uh, 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 patrolling uh, troops to take them out of these areas or not? Nothing was said about the gains made by the Syrian Arab army and Russia in particular. After uh, the agreement, actually, Vladimir Putin, the Russian president, called President Assad and congratulated him over the military advancements that were uh, made by the Syrian Arab army, which indicates that Russia will not ask of the Syrian Arab army to move its forces from the area that they liberated. Uh, three, and the most importantly, no one said a word about the terrorist organizations, whether within the M4 patrolling area or within Idlib itself. Because uh, Maria Zakharova, the spokesperson of the Russian Foreign Ministry, said specifically said that this ceasefire is a very important time for us to now 
go on and continue fighting terrorism. And then she said that Syria has every right to eliminate terrorism from its soil. So what's happening there? We have no real explanation. And then nothing was even said about uh, what what's going to happen with the uh, Turkish uh, bordering European countries issue, because Turkey obviously opens its border for illegal uh, um, immigrants. Some say that they are uh, actual refugees. They opened the gates to, to go to Greece and other uh, areas like maybe Bulgaria. Uh, we don't know yet if they are making it there or not. But the issue is no one mentioned this in the agreement. Maybe it's not up to Russia or Russia. Russia doesn't want to get involved with this turmoil. They're leaving Erdogan by himself to react to this new turmoil. And again, we hear Recep Tayyip Erdogan saying that we're not going to leave Idlib because if we leave Idlib now, it means we have to leave Iskenderun or Hatay. The Turkish occupied uh, the Assyrian re uh, region of Iskenderun. They call it Hatay. That's before uh, the um, that's during the World War One. So uh, now he's saying that we're not going to leave Idlib because if we do, it means we're going to have to leave uh, uh, Iskenderun as well, which per se, by default, he's saying that we are also occupying Iskenderun. So at, we are at the weakest point for uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan at the moment. And Turkey is not very happy with what their president is bringing about, which is their soldiers in coffins in a war that they did not sign on in. Why do you think he did that? Uh, you know, not that long ago, uh, President Erdogan was very successful. The economy in Turkey was very good. Uh, the Kurdish question inside their country uh, was on track, had a peace process and so on. Uh, they had no quarrels with their neighbors. Why do you think President Erdogan has done this? And as you describe it, uh, has uh, committed this enormous series of blunders. Well, I believe that he made some sort of a miscalculation to what the things in the region are going uh, towards, especially after the so-called Arab Spring, which is nothing <laughs> close to a spring. But after the 2011 revolutions that were happening all around the Arab world, I think uh, Erdogan at that point, by the way, just two weeks before the beginning of the global war on Syria, there was a meeting between President Assad and uh, President Recep Tayyip Erdogan. They were having breakfast together and they were pretty much buddies, not even friends. Just two weeks later, we start hearing certain um, statements coming out of uh, Turkish institutions and later on bluntly and openly by the Turkish president saying that Assad must go, Syria is being ruled by a dictator, etc., etc. The same scenario that has been re being repeated for the past nine years. But he had a lot of chances to back down. Erdogan, as you said, began as a very successful leader. He took Turkey into a very different, successfully, uh, meaning different area for where it, it was before before he became prime minister and then later on president, he had several uh, uh, opportunities during the war on Syria to correct the mistakes because things were being uh, uh, elaborated uh, even more and explained more whether to the public or to the entire world, especially from 2014 on, that this was not a civil war, as the mainstream media was reporting. It was a takfiri terrorist organization groups 
funded by regional uh, Gulf monarchies and at some point by uh, Turkey itself when they wanted to get a piece of the pie and by Qatar as well, because we saw uh, Chechnyans, we saw Afghanis, Pakistanis, Indians, uh, Uyghurs from China. We saw people from all over the world, from the West, uh, from the US, the UK, all over, over Europe, from Australia coming over to liberate Syria from the Syrians themselves. So starting 2014, and especially during 2017, when the real liberation started happening by the Syrian Arab army, along with the help of Russia and their allies from Hezbollah and the Iranians and the Fatimi Yun from uh, Afghanistan as well, when that started happening, Erdogan should have taken that as a hint and maybe started to develop certain ties because Russia was there involved and trying to bring the Syrian and the Turkish sides together but he resisted. And I think that has to do with something that is now very well known in the Turkish media and in the Arab media, known by the Assad dilemma inside Erdogan's head. This Assad dilemma has taken over the real, uh, if you will, strategic thinking of President Erdogan, where he sees nothing except the fall of President Assad, which is not the case because the man was elected by his own people. So why would you want to get involved in that and add to that that the entire Syrian uh, ground is being liberated. It started with Palmyra, it moved to uh, Deir Zor, Dara, then Homs and Hama, and now finally Aleppo. People are going back to their normal lives, students going back to universities, hospitals operating normally. People are not being killed and murdered by terrorist bombardments of uh, shelling, uh, artillery shelling, especially coming from uh, Idlib. It, that also stopped with the liberation of uh, northern Aleppo and Aleppo countryside, which is on the border of Idlib. So all of these were opportunities for Erdogan to just, he doesn't have to change course, but just stop and think a bit about the future of these two states, which share a long border from the coast to Iraq, that these people have a history together, that we need to sit down, call me, talk about this, especially that President Putin has been trying to get Erdogan down that tree that he went up on his own, but it was not working. So what I think now is that after what happened and the very dangerous escalation that happened during the past couple of weeks or the past 12 days to be specific, Erdogan felt that he played all his cards. He tried a war with Syria. While he was trying the invasion, he asked for the NATO's help. NATO refused because they said that Turkey was not under danger. Turkey was actually invading another country. He asked for Patriot missiles from the U.S. The U.S. says, well, you have the S-400. Why are you asking for the Patriot missiles? No one agreed to help him. And then eventually he went up to Russia and now he's pleading for help from Russia. Well, that's very helpful indeed, Marwa, as always. Thanks very much indeed for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. Stay tuned. I'll be back right after the news with Emily Horn. Curious about our curriculum? Have something to say? Then call us now to join the debate on the mother of all talk shows with George Galloway. Every Tuesday to Loud and Clear for a regular segment called False Profits, a weekly look at Wall Street and corporate capitalism, where we talk about the big economic issues of the week from the point of view of working people, the poor, and the U.S. position in the global economy. Join us this Tuesday and every Tuesday with financial policy analyst Daniel Sankey right here on Radio Sputnik. It's time.
time to double down with Max and Stacy. Yeah, double down. We're talking markets, finance, business, economics, ka-ching, bling, just about everything money-related on Sputnik. It's called Double Down. We're asking, are dead cats bouncing or have fundamentals changed? That's this week on Double Down. Radio Sputnik. We speak your language. Find us at SputnikNews.com. Radio Sputnik News. Italy is placing up to 16 million people under quarantine as it battles to contain the spread of coronavirus. Anyone living in Lombardy and 14 other central and northern provinces will need special permission to travel. Milan and Venice are both affected. Prime Minister Giuseppe Conti is also announcing the closure of schools, gyms, museums, nightclubs and other venues across the whole country. The measures, the most radical taken outside of China, will last until April 3rd. Italy has seen the largest number of coronavirus infections in Europe, with the number of confirmed cases jumping by more than 1,200 to 5,883, with more than 230 deaths and 36 in 24 hours. People are being told to stay at home as much as possible, and those who break the quarantine could face three months in jail. A total of 273 people in Britain have tested positive, with two now dead. In total, 11 people have died. Meanwhile, in the U.S., the number is now at 20. Worldwide, 107,000 have the virus, with more than 3,600 deaths. Moscow is announcing a prison term of up to five years for those who fail to self-isolate as governments around the globe are ramping up measures to stop the spread of the virus. UK supermarkets are beginning to ration essential food and household items as a result of stockpiling. Tesco, the largest, is limiting shoppers to no more than five of each of the rationed goods, including antibacterial gels, wipes and sprays, dry pasta, UHT milk and some tinned vegetables. Waitrose is introducing a temporary cap on some items on its website, including some antibacterial soaps and wipes. The high street chemist Boots is restricting sales on hand sanitizers to two per person. And at least six people are dead and 28 remain missing after a hotel being used as a coronavirus quarantine facility in the Chinese city of Chanju collapsed. Rescue workers are still searching the rubble of the five-story Zingjie'er Hotel in the southern province of Fujian. 71 people were in the building when it collapsed and dozens have been rescued. It's not clear what caused the incident. The city of Chanju has recorded 47 cases of the virus, which first emerged in the city of Wuhan around 1,000 kilometers away. In other news, California Senator Kamala Harris is now endorsed Joe Biden with great enthusiasm as the Democratic Party's U.S. presidential candidate. She says Biden has served the country with dignity and claims her country needs him now more than ever. Harris, who is seen as a rising star within the party, dropped out of the presidential race in December. President Trump has also weighed into the race, accusing the Democratic Party leadership of double dealing. He tweeted saying, we have now learned for sure that the Democrats don't want anything to do with crazy Bernie, referring to Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders. 
And an airstrike in Somalia has killed a senior commander of militant Islamic group Al-Shab. The U.S. issued a reward of $5 million in 2008 for information on the whereabouts of Bashir Mohammed Korgab. He was in charge of attacks on military bases and was also involved in operations in Kenya. The U.S. carries out frequent airstrikes in Somalia to target militants. It's not yet commented on the report and Korgab's family has confirmed his death. And finally, James Bond star Daniel Craig has confirmed that No Time to Die will be his last movie as 007. There are reports the British actor is considering another outing as the spy, but he's taken the opportunity to outline his intentions while hosting Saturday Night Live in the U.S. Craig's fifth Bond movie was set to hit cinemas next month, but its release has been delayed until November due to coronavirus. Well, that's all on Sputnik News. I'm Emily Horn. You're listening to Radio Sputnik. Telling the untold. Welcome to the Open University of the Airwaves with George Galloway. Only on Sputnik Radio. Well, it's the final hour and uh, it's largely up to you. Uh, let me tell you how you voted on the poll. Toilet paper. Will you be panic buying toilet paper? Only 4% of you. Who might those 4% be? And uh, hand gel, 8% of you. At least that has a, a, a scintilla of logic. But C, nothing at all, 88% of you. That's uh, restored my faith in the British public. Martin Howie gives some suggestions for the Moats Book Club, which is launched this evening. Exposure by lawyer Rob Billot. Billot took on the DuPont Chemical Company over the chemical PFOA, which the company knew was dangerous but hid the data. The effect has been that the chemical is now in the blood of every human and other animal on the planet. Crikey. Dr. Fath says, great show tonight and looking sharper than a bowl of razor soup. Thank you. May I suggest for your book club, De Valera, Longfellow, Long Shadow by Tim Pat Coogan. It makes many things clear regarding the relationship between our two nations. That's Ireland and Britain. I have read it. It's a very fine book. Karen Cottenden says, I've literally just finished The Ragged Trousered Philanthropists. Currently, a long book. The Jungle by Upton Sinclair is another great socialist book. It's the US version of The Ragged Trousered Philanthropist. A vegan message in there too. So it's a twofer. Two for one. Hashtag grinning face. Thanks for that, uh, Karen. I appreciate that. Um, I, I do recall vaguely, yeah, I know what you mean by the vegans, some horrific uh, slaughterhouse scenes in Upton Sinclair's The Jungle, as I recall, though it's probably 40 years since I uh, read it. Now, joining us is the, I can only describe him, he's an old friend of mine, he won't mind me saying so, the internet sensation. Dr. Ranjit Brars, common sense on coronavirus has swept the world. It certainly gained over 200,000, climbing towards a quarter of a million uh, uh, of an audience. Uh, and it was only, I think, uh, a short seven, eight minute interview. Uh, but because this uh, epidemic, pandemic, panic continues, we're going to keep going back to uh, Dr. Ranjit for an update on how it's all looking. Uh, indeed, we're creating a spin-off 
called Motes Medic and Dr. Ranjit. Is the Dr. Kildare de Nojour of the 21st century? Not many people, Ranjit, remember Dr. Kildare, but alas, I do. Welcome back. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. George, thanks so much for having us back on. Now, tell me, uh, since we last spoke last week, a lot more people have got this virus and a lot more people have died. Uh, were we right in the balance we struck last week? Do we need to adjust it any? Because, of course, when facts change, so must our opinions. That's right, George. I think that's a, a, a reasonable point. Um, overall, I think the balance really hasn't changed dramatically. What has changed is where the highest risk areas are. Um, initially, we thought of this as an outbreak centering around Wuhan, and 95% of the cases were there. Um, I read a very interesting report by the European CDC, so an EU institution similar to the CDC, Center for Disease Control in the United States. Um, they actually sent a delegation over to China um, and seen how they coped with the outbreak. And I've got to say it was a, it was a, a glowing report, a report really at odds with much of the tone of the media coverage. And, and really, we're reaching the end of the bell curve in China. You know, initially, there's a propagation phase with these uh, infections, where it seems that more and more people are getting it, seems to be spreading at an exponential rate. And that seemed to be, and that was spreading the initial panic. Certainly, the United States, and not the only country, has stopped travel with China, and really using the situation to try and advance its program of sanctions with China. The ECDC struck a much more sober tone, apart from, you know, the obvious things that we've already commented on. Like, amazing, really, to see, one, the virus identified in sequence so soon, that sequence shared with the world, the simple 10 base pairs being the basis for ongoing research into um, a vaccine, uh, more of that later, but also their drug trials and showing uh, um, that with adequate hospital care, categorizing the risk of the patients into low risk who could self-isolate at home, slightly more seriously ill patients, and they created mass wards where they could be infected and cared for by teams who were themselves increasingly well protected from the infective agent. And then lastly, recognizing a small cohort. So really, 5% of the patients who got a much more serious illness. And it's these ones who are getting the lower respiratory tract infection, uh, the whiteout of the lungs that you classically see with this ground glass of pacification on CT and, and plain radiograph film. And it's those ones who have these SARS, the, the severe uh, acute respiratory distress syndrome type picture. What's interesting to see is that actually, if anything, it's become probably less dangerous than we had initially thought. Uh, so if you look at the World Health Organization, they're still using overall uh, a figure of around 3% mortality, which is very high and considerably higher than flu, which would be around 0.1, 0.2%. But if you look at the, lo the latest, so the last cases in China, when it was well recognized and being treated aggressively, including with antiviral medication, which we'll come to a bit later on, um, that, that mortality has fallen considerably, and probably 0.6 or 0.7 is a closer figure. So, I mean, that's the positive thing. The other, the other very simple step that China took was very rigorous uh, contact tracing. So they're able to mobilize their health system, mobilize their resources to make sure that every positive result was rigorously traced. Everyone they met with and every single one of those people was isolated, 
pending uh, the results of whether or not they had in fact contracted the virus. And it was those measures in particular, you know, effective quarantining, closing down, um, ex you know, unusual, um, well, interstate transportation, um, closing down obviously the epicenter of the virus, but rigorous contact tracing and concentration in specifically designed and rapidly fashioned hospitals that had amazing effect in China. That's not been mirrored, unfortunately, in other countries. Well, definitely not. Uh, but before I leave that point, uh, someone wrote in. It was a bit of uh, uh, it was a bit of a non sequitur, really, because I had been praising the construction of rapidly construction of the hospitals, the ten day, twelve day hospitals. Uh, they pointed out that in Guangzhou. Uh, uh, an isolation uh, hotel had fallen down. Had that been rapidly built or was that a longer standing structure? Do you know about that? I'm afraid I can't comment on that, George. I don't have information about that and that's not come to my attention. But if I find, I'll, I'll look into it and if um, I see you again, I'll see what I can dig up on so it. I'm, I'm being told in my ear it was an old one and therefore has nothing to do with the rapid construction of the hospitals. That's all worked well, I infer from what you say. Yes, indeed. Now, uh, how are we doing on a vaccine? Who will make this vaccine? Will China get there first? Or will the American uh, uh, Big Pharma uh, get there and, and uh, make a hell of a profit out of giving it to each of us? That's an interesting point, George. So um, along with the gene sequencing, the genes themselves code for proteins. Um, there's only 10 genes, 10 distinct proteins. Uh, so it's really quite a simple organism in some respects. As we said before, virus is not a complete life form. One of those proteins is the so-called spike protein. I'm sure everyone's now seen pictures of the protein. Uh, coronaviruses are relatively large spherical polyhedra really because they've got a repeating um, protein which makes up their coat and then they have a lipid layer and they have a transmembrane domain and sticking out from that is a large spike protein i'm sure you've seen hence the name really corona looking like the sun and not incidentally corona uh, like the beer uh, interestingly in the united states uh, the, the corona beer is absolutely tanked in terms of itself because of confusion about uh, that point in that it's terminology an which it's says, an ill wind that blows nobody any good <laughs> Anyway, go on. <laughs> it's rather more about a public perception than the, than the virus itself. But that protein is very likely to be the target um, as, a, as a specific antigen which would be available for a vaccine. It has to be careful with vaccine development that um, you, have, um, you need an antigen, so part of that protein, which is not found within the human organism. So that when you opsonize, when you target that particular point on the virus, that that doesn't cause immune reaction also towards the host organism in the body. And therefore, you know, there, there are a, a series of ascending trials, phase one, phase two, phase three trials, in order to get up to a, vi a, 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 a vaccine which is commercially viable, which is actually safe for the general public. I think, you know, organizations within China, the, the medical um, uh, establishment in China, the medical organizations in China are working on that. It's quite clear that Sanofi, um, Pfizer, various, there are five major um, health firms in the United States who between them essentially have a, a monopoly on, on uh, vaccine production. It's very clear that they are extremely keen on working on that. Um, 
in a sense, that's not a, a new... I think Boris also visited um, a British laboratory where he was um, saying the government would give some money towards that development. There's no way on earth that's going to be ready immediately, probably not for a year or a year and a half with a, a reasonable estimate. And that's a very accelerated estimate in itself. That would be unusually quick. So it's not going to be a vaccine which saves us from this outbreak. It is really the more simple measures of existing antiviral medication and carefully self-isolating, contact tracing, and trying to stop the spread in that manner. You know, in fact, if you look at the job China's done, they've managed to limit, you know, they've got a 1.4 billion population, they've managed to limit the virus, and now it really is in its declining phase, uh, to less than half of one hundredth of one percent of the population. And that's in a really stark contrast to the um, prediction that was given by Matt Hancock, our own health secretary, who almost blurted out, it seemed, in, in the interview, that, that we'd probably end up with an 80% of the British public being affected. And it's a quite a reach from the current situation, where still there are less than 200 people who have the virus. And it should be possible to contain the virus and stop a generalised spread. Let me ask you a, 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 a trivial for a man of your standing. Um, in the football today, uh, the players were not allowed to shake hands with each other. Mm. Even though they were playing in a stadium with 80,000 people breathing viruses and other germs uh, at them. Do you think this kind of thing is such an overreaction uh, that we should see less of it? Uh, yeah, I, have, I have mixed feelings. I mean, there's nothing wrong with telling people to be careful that there's a high risk situation. You know, no one, if you really want a video to go viral, George, I was mean, very pleased with the response that, that I had from my colleagues, friends, family who've seen this video. But if you really want something to go viral, it seems that you really have to do is take a video of you carefully washing your hands in the appropriate manner. It seems that we all know how to wash our hands, um, whether we sing the national anthem or happy birthday while we're doing it. Uh, but, you know, we can all judge that washing our hands is a safe thing to do. And yet there is research that shows, you know, we have a, a lax attitude towards basic hygiene, essentially because our everyday life experience shows us that risk is relatively low with the levels of hygiene we tend to use. So, you know, President Trump coming out and saying that he hasn't been touching his face for several uh, weeks now, uh, and us encouraging us not to touch our mucous membranes, I think it's reasonable, you know, that the, the virus will get into the human body through mucous membranes, through coughs and sneezes. So coughs and sneezes cause diseases, you know, sneezing into a tissue, sneezing into your arm, throwing that away, w washing very rigorously. I think all of those are perfectly reasonable things to do. But there, there comes a point when, you know, you do start to panic monger. I, you know, I said last time when I was with you that the tube and other large crowd, crowded areas probably would be high risk areas if we come to the stages of a pandemic. And I must say, there's a palpably different atmosphere uh, when you travel through London with people quite clearly slightly nervous of, you know, interpersonal contact. And that is really an effect of the media hype surrounding this infection, which is like no other media hype that I've ever seen regarding any other infection, which is not to underplay the seriousness you know, of the situation. Well, uh, finally, uh, President Trump may not be touching his face as much as before, but he did shake the hand of someone at a right-wing conservative conference uh, just the other day who is now a confirmed sufferer of coronavirus. The impact on the United States I'm making a guess here. You're the expert. 
I actually think this could be pretty devastating for the United States. It's already set the stock market tumbling, may actually end up costing President Trump a second term. What do you think? I think, if, you know, great play has been made. I mean, I saw Alex Azar, who was the U.S. Health Secretary, being uh, cross-examined, if you like, by a congressional committee. Uh, and Marco Rubio was one of those notoriously right-wing senators who stood against Trump in the first round, who was cross-examining him, and was constantly making the point that, you know, 80% of our medicines and the precursors to make our medicines come from China, and trying to use the situation of an outbreak of a health problem in China to change that, to enforce their pre-existing program of furthering sanctions, furthering the trade war. And certainly that's been the case with Iran. You know, the, the, the foreign secretary of Iran has come out and said, at this time, when we need help, when we need aid, the United States is ramping up the sanctions. And those are certainly despicable things. But actually, if you look at the way China's dealt with it, the, the way that was commended by, as I say, the European CDC, and not an institution you could um, accuse of harboring any great you know, sympathy for socialism, communism, or China, whichever of those you think it is. Um, you know, their report and their glowing report of how China coped with it will not be reflected in the United States. The United States may well be, you know, in the worst position to deal with such an outbreak. As you know, there are 40, 50, 60 million cases of flu every year. But as you were saying, I think quite reasonably in our last interview, if you're a United States worker who's lucky enough to have a job, you know, if you're self-employed, there's very little social safety net. We know there are 50 million people in the United States who have no insurance and therefore very little access to health care. But beyond that, actually, the insured themselves, you know, Bob Gill's excellent uh, movie, um, which I really think everyone should watch, which is called The Great NHS Heist, points out that this is the direction in which currently and unchecked our own health system is moving. It's moving towards an insurance-based uh, system. And we touched on that again last time. But if you're in that situation, not only are you, do you end up with a, a large percentage of the population who have no health cover, the ones who do have health cover have uh, what they call deductibles. So they have to meet a certain, like when you crash your car, you have to pay out 500 or 1,000 pounds before the insurance company pay out. The same thing for your health. And that forms an enormous barrier. So there are people who have turned up, you know, for testing um, you know, for, for COVID-19 and found that they met with a bill, even though they're negative, of three, $4,000, which is prohibitive. Um, if you see then people in our own country who come into some, something like a similar situation, you know, they're on zero hours contracts or self-employed. They can't actually afford to be unwell and self-isolate. They can't afford not to present to the DSS. So that actually, you know, this decision, which should be a straightforward medical decision, stay at home to prevent a wider health problem and a wider economic problem if you disable a larger portion of the working population, you know, there's a fundamental conflict with actually the, the economic modus operandi of our society. And increasingly, you know, I meet patients, they come to me, they're having elective operations, and they're very anxious about the period of time they'll have to spend off work. And they ask me, you know, very few people now have that level of social safety net where they feel they could happily take two weeks or a month off work. And there's a very good video, which I think you know, is worth seeing. It's already had hundreds of thousands of hits. It's a diary um, of a frontline, quite heroic frontline worker in China, in Wuhan area, a nurse who from the early days caught the virus because they didn't yet know exactly how to contain it, though their methods got better and better. And you can, it's a beautiful human story, but you can see that she, through self-isolation, was able to cure herself and get herself better, just with, again, I think she had some antiviral medication. What's the name of that, doctor? 
the course of her illness was about 10 days, 12 days, two weeks, and then she probably needed another week off. But there are not, there are many, many workers, both within the United States and Britain, where that would mean a huge challenge to their finances, possibly even they're unable to repay their mortgage. And of course, that means further problems with homelessness. Possibly, you know, so the crisis caused by what should be a simple medical matter goes well beyond just the extent of the severity of the illness, though clearly that is on people's mind at present. Crystal clear, as always. Thank you very much. Motes Medic, Dr. Ranjit Brar. Thank you very much uh, for joining us again. Let's go to the lines. Uh, Rahul is in Bordeaux on this subject. Rahul. Oh, hello there, George. How are you? By the grace of God, I'm good. Thank you very much. And are you enjoying Bordeaux? Oh, I love it. Wonderful, wonderful weather. Excellent. Hot sunshine. Go ahead. <laughs> yes, um, I actually wanted to talk to you about the coronavirus um, in a light-hearted spirit. Of, of course, it's very, very serious, uh, the deaths and uh, all the suffering that it's brought. But I think there is one amusing byproduct. Tell me. Um, I was wondering if perhaps the coronavirus could be seen as the avenging spirit of freedom and civil liberties. Because uh, we live in Europe, and it's a continent which is supposed to value freedom. And uh, I think you will probably agree with me, George, that there seems to have been a lot of very unreasonable hostility expressed towards people who wear headscarves, people who want to cover themselves up, or men with unconventional beards. And there's been a lot of very unfair, blatantly linking of Islam with, with terrorism, which is very unreasonable. And then people like Boris Johnson and Julia Hartley Brewer, you know, making fun of women for wearing burqas. In France, where I live, um, local authorities have tried to ban people from covering up on beaches in France, you know, of, of all places where, you know, people surely should be encouraged to cover up. And I was thinking that perhaps, you know, the coronavirus is the avenging spirit of freedom because in Europe we have unreasonably tried to force people uh, who want to cover up, not to cover up. I see. Rahul, thanks uh, for that call. Just because of the hour, and I've got so many people on my wall, uh, you see the, uh, the niqab, the covering uh, of the lower half of the face that a very small percentage of Muslim women wear in uh, Western countries, is a kind of early uh, mask to keep out the coronavirus. Very interesting. Fraser in Calgary. Go ahead, Fraser. Hello, George. It's good to be back again. <laughs> nice to hear a Scottish voice from Calgary. I know it That's well. It. <laughs> Go ahead, sir. Um, so it's just a quick perspective, and given the stuff that's going on with the primary at the moment, I've got a good few friends who live in Wisconsin, and they were Bernie supporters last time. Mm -hmm. And they held on those and voted for Hillary, rightly or wrongly. But they've said this time, if uh, you know Joe Biden gets the nomination, there's no way on earth they're putting a tick next to his name on the box at all. Well, I wouldn't. Uh, um, I, no. If I were an American, it's Bernie mm -hmm. or bust. It's Bernie or a third-party candidate. Uh, yeah. I certainly would never, could never, encourage anyone to vote for Joe Biden on his record. Yeah. Never mind on the That's fact it. that he may very well be Gaga. And President yeah. Gaga uh, is what we're trying to avoid uh, for another four years yeah. in the United States. Uh, and of course, yeah. um, the point is Trump will annihilate him. He will literally crush him. 
Can you imagine a debate between Donald Trump, who whatever else you say about Donald Trump, he's verbally fast on his feet on a platform with a big crowd. He can find the words that can hammer uh, his opponents. I mean, he'll have them chanting, uh, you know, lock him up in, uh, in whatever the uh, most famous uh, mental institution is. He'll be brutal, cruel. He will not uh, hold back at all, Fraser, from crushing Joe Biden on the grounds of his mental uh, limitations. Do you, don't you agree? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think I'm just uh, happy to see that my friends who, you know, were basically bullied by the establishment last time into voting for mm. a war criminal mm. with a surname of Clinton. Mm. And they've just said, no, do you know what? They said, to hell with it. Uh, if it's Trump again, it's better than creepy, uh, sleepy uh, Especially <laughs> in Rust Belt industrial, post-industrial states uh, like Wisconsin. Who are you going to vote for? The guy who actually destroyed the industrial base of your state, who de-industrialized you, who ripped your blue collar off, tore up your union card, sent you, if you were lucky, into McDonald's to flip burgers instead of making steel and vehicles and all the things you used to do before Joe Biden uh, and Bill Clinton and all the Clintonite, Obamaite uh, circles transferred all your industries out of the country under NAFTA. You'd need to be mad, Fraser, uh, to agree to that. Till justice prevails, says, what do you call the shooting of children, paramedics, journalists in cold blood, water and crops poisoning, poisoning organ harvesting, ethnic cleansing, the terrorism list by Israel? is so long. And Constance Arens says Assad Syria is secular and multicultural. What is the alternative? ISIS or Al-Qaeda? The choice is simple really when you peel away all the propaganda. And Keel Jones said, says people should also read Upton Sinclair's King Cole. Uh, Constance again says when Erdogan saw the Muslim Brotherhood lose Egypt, perhaps he thought he could bring the Muslim Brotherhood to power in Syria, since it was next door to Turkey. Lily says, vaccine? No, I demand informed consent. I will not be forced to have their stuff put into my body. See the International Conference on Informed Consent. George, how clued are you up on vaccines? Not at all. Uh, in reply to the current poll, the current poll is on International Women's Day. Who is your woman of the year? A, Greta Thunberg. 46%. B, Megan Windsor, 22%. That's spelt wrongly, by the way. And C, Me Too, the Me Too women, the people who exposed uh, uh, Epstein and, and Weinstein and uh, the other uh, people who have been beginning to tumble now and end up in jail or dead in the case of Epstein uh, because of their beastly uh, behavior towards women. Uh, so you can vote on that. I wouldn't vote for any of those three myself. We should have had a, a, an other box there. I don't know if you can. Anyway, A, Greta Thunberg, B, Megan Windsor, spelt with a D, which it now is, and C, the Me Too women. Uh, but in reply to this poll, Mr. Common Sense says, my wife, she's the strongest, hardest working, most loving, intelligent, gorgeous woman I've ever known. Your three choices pale into insignificance in comparison. And so say all of us, Mr. Common Sense. That would get my vote.
two. David says, I honestly can't vote for any of these options. Both Greta and Meghan have done women grave disservice with their harping and lecturing. As for me too, well, sometimes I fear injustice masquerading as justice when judicial decisions are based upon mass hysteria. And Sleeping Policeman says, what next, Cousins Day, Auntie Day, Best Boss Day, pandering to so much stuff that's just not needed or necessary. That's from a churlish man. Let me take a quick break. Radio Sputnik. We speak your language. Find us at SputnikNews.com. Tune in every Thursday to Loud and Clear with Brian Becker for the regular segment called Veterans for Peace, where we focus on the contemporary issues of war and peace that affect veterans, their families, the country, and the world as a whole. Veterans for Peace President Jerry Condon joins the show every Thursday. Hear about this and more every Thursday right here on Radio Sputnik. We are above all the latest developments, and we don't take any sides. Radio Sputnik, telling the untold. The mother of all talk shows. With George Galloway, the world is our classroom, and you're welcome to sit in and join the seminar. In the last few minutes, it's being reported that a man in his 60s has died in hospital tonight in Britain after testing positive for the coronavirus. It's the third death in the UK now. This is coming from NHS England. The total global death toll now stands at 3,802. The total number of confirmed cases worldwide now stands at 109,809. We'll be keeping on top of this issue uh, with our special health correspondent in Moats Medic. Dr. Ranjit Brar. Now, the next inductee for the Hall of Fame is the Right Honourable Anthony Wedgwood Ben, who was born on the 3rd of April 1925. He was an MP for 47 years between the 1950 and 2001 general elections and a cabinet minister in the Labour governments of Harold Wilson and James Callaghan in the 1960s and 70s. He inherited a peerage on his father's death as the second Viscount Stansgate, which prevented him from continuing to serve as an MP. He fought to remain in the House of Commons and then campaigned for the ability to renounce his title, a campaign which succeeded with the Peerage Act of 1963 the first time that Mr. Benn changed the constitution of Great Britain. In the Labour government of 74 to 79, he was Secretary of State for Industry, then sacked sideways by Harold Wilson and became the Secretary of State for Energy, just as North Sea oil was coming on stream. He wanted the public ownership of that oil and a sovereign wealth fund to be the beneficiary of it. What a pity he was unable to persuade his leader of it. He kept that post though when James Callaghan succeeded Wilson as Prime Minister. When the Labour Party was in opposition throughout the 1980s, he emerged as a prominent figure on the left of the party and the term Benite came into use as someone associated with left-wing politics. I myself define myself 
as a Benite. He unsuccessfully challenged Neil Kinnock for the Labour leadership in 1988. He had two brothers, Michael, who was killed in the Second World War, and David, a specialist in Russia and Eastern Europe. After the Thames flood in January 1928, their stately house was uninhabitable. So the Benn family moved to Scotland for over 12 months. And Mr. Benn had the deepest of connections to Scotland all of his life. He met Prime Minister Ramsay MacDonald when he was five years old, whom he described as a kindly old gentleman who leaned over me and offered me a chocolate biscuit. He said, I've looked at Labour leaders in a funny way ever since. He also met the former Liberal Prime Minister, David Lloyd George, when he was 12, and later recalled that while still a boy, he once shook hands with Mahatma Gandhi in 1931, when his father was Secretary of State for India. Ben met Caroline, his wife, over tea at Worcester College, Oxford, in 1949. Just nine days after meeting her, he proposed to her on a park bench in the city. Later, he bought the bench from Oxford City Council and installed it in the garden of their home in Holland Park. Tony and Caroline had four children. During the Second World War, Mr. Ben joined and trained with the Home Guard from the age of 16, later recalling in a speech made in 2009, I could use a bayonet, a rifle, a revolver, and if I'd seen a German officer having a meal, I'd have tossed a grenade through the window. Would I have been a freedom fighter or a terrorist? In July 1943, Mr. Ben enlisted in the RAF as aircraftman second class. His father and elder brother Michael, who was later killed in an accident, were already serving in the RAF. He was granted an emergency commission as a pilot officer on probation on the 10th of March 1945. Shortly after his retirement, he became the president of the Stop the War Coalition. He became the leading figure in the British opposition to the war in Afghanistan in 2001 and the Iraq War. And in February 2003, he traveled to Baghdad to meet Saddam Hussein, a visit arranged by me and filmed and accompanied by our editor, Ron Mackay. The interview was broadcast on British television. He spoke against the war at the February 2003 protest in London, organized by Stop the War, with police saying it was the biggest ever demonstration in the UK, organizers estimating between one million and two million people having taken part. In 1990, Mr. Ben was diagnosed with chronic lymphatic leukemia and given three or four years to live. At this time, he kept the news of his leukemia from everyone except his immediate family. Mr. Ben said, when you're in parliament, you can't describe your medical condition. People immediately start wondering what your majority is and when there will be a by-election. Mr. Ben suffered a stroke in 2012 and died at home on the 14th of March, 2014, surrounded by his family, less than a month shy of his 89th birthday. He was a prolific diarist. Nine volumes of his diaries have been published, the final volume published in 2013. He made public several episodes of audio diaries he made during his time in Parliament and after retirement, entitled The Ben Tapes, broadcast originally on BBC Radio 4. Tony Benn was the greatest socialist leader uh, that there ever was in Britain. 
His diction, his accent, his erudition, his intelligence, combined with his sincerity and the crystal clarity of the vision that he had for a different kind of Britain, not only chimed with me, but inspired me. And I'm proud to say that I was a personal friend of the late Mr. Ben from 1973 until the last time I saw him disappearing in his coffin outside of the St. Margaret's Church in Westminster upon his demise. And I've got to say that he was the greatest prime minister that Britain never had. If Britain had Tony Benn as our prime minister, our country and indeed the wider world would have been very different indeed. Tony Benn had the capacity to really change things, which is why they tried so hard, as hard as with anyone I've ever seen, before or since, to destroy and crush him. But Mr. Benn was loved by ordinary people. No person who ever met him did not love him. And the ordinary people, the working people in this country who got to know him, who got to hear him, who got to read him, who got to learn what it was that he was saying, loved him most of all. You can uh, see my tribute to him upon his uh, death uh, on YouTube. It might be worth your while. Uh, now, along with the Hall of Fame, of course, goes the Wall of Shame. And the latest nominee for our Wall of Shame has a special place in the annals of infamy and hopefully if there's justice in hell. No contemporary politician has wrought more havoc and distress in the world, aided by a collection of dupes, useful idiots and venal ideologues. The world is still ravaged by his term in office and the monumental death toll of innocence killed by his actions runs into millions. This was the most dangerous idiot in political history. His name was George W. Bush. He served as the 43rd President of the United States from 2001 to 2009. And he delivered us wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, which continue to rage today. He could not have done so, of course, except for the aid and assistance given by another inductee onto the wall of shame our own Tony Blair. Bush apparently persuaded Blair to join him in the Iraq war over prayers in the White House, although it isn't clear what God they were praying to. Bush was the village idiot's idiot until he was used up by the latest inhabitant of 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue in Washington. It's on the record that I warned strongly beforehand about the consequences of the folly of the Iraq invasion. Tragically, I proved all too prescient. Bush was, of course, a Republican. Prior to being elected president, he'd previously served as the 46th governor of Texas from 1995 to the year 2000. He's the eldest son of Barbara and George H.W. Bush himself, of course, a president. After somehow graduating from Yale University, never mind graduating, somehow getting in, and Harvard Business School, in 1975, he worked in the oil industry where he married Laura Welch and unsuccessfully ran for the US House of Representatives 
shortly afterward. He later co-owned the Texas Rangers baseball team before defeating Ann Richards in the 1994 Texas gubernatorial election. I remember Ann Richards as she campaigned against George Bush when she said a woman was at least as fit as a man to be the governor. After all, she said, look at Ginger Rogers. Ginger Rogers did everything that Fred Astaire did except backwards in high heels. How great it would have been if Richards had defeated him. How great it would have been if even Gore had defeated him as president. How great it would have been if the courts stuffed by justices appointed by his own father, if attorneys general serving his own brother, if the Fox News media had not rushed to anoint as president the man who actually lost the election. George Bush was the unelected president of the United States. He sat in the White House by the grace and favor of his own brother in the state of Florida where they rigged the election. They rigged it actually in many different places. But George Bush's war, aided and abetted by Tony Blair, was not just a gigantic crime in its own right. It was a gigantic blunder. And that blunder reverberates still. If some atrocity takes place in some part of the world this evening, God forbid, it will be directly linked to the invasion and occupation of Iraq by George W. Bush and by Tony Blair, who didn't have the alibi that he was inches from imbecility, as George W. Bush did. Okay, let me give you an update. The latest victim in the UK to die from coronavirus was a man in his 60s. He was being treated at Manchester General Hospital. It's now emerged he'd only recently returned from Italy. This has now just been confirmed by NHS England. We've got a legend on the line. It's the legend that is Norma. Norma, you've got a nomination for the Hall of Fame. Go ahead. Yeah. I'm, your, I'm your servant. Go ahead. Well, um, it's just for your consideration, my choice. Yeah. Um, it's Luciano Pavarotti. Now, Pavarotti, um, I saw a little The film Voice of God. Yeah, I mean, I saw this film this afternoon, a little one, on YouTube, and uh, it's called Pavarotti, Birth of a Popstar. Now, he had a magnificent voice. I'm not going to say too much, because I want you to just look into it. He was larger than life. He gave pleasure to thousands all over the world, and he promoted Italian opera, and he was born in very humble beginnings in Moderna in Italy. His, I think his mother worked in a factory, and his father was a baker. And he actually gave concerts with lots of famous pop stars. He was very colourful, you know. And um, at this time, we were all a bit worried about everything. I think it's time we had... I think that's a very good suggestion and we'll give it serious consideration. I wasn't joking when I said that he was the voice of God. I think oh, there was yeah. something yeah. divine in his voice. And as I, you know, I'm a religious believer, I 
often made the point, do you think that voice came by random selection from the, uh, the amoeba that were at the bottom of the swamp? Because if you do, I've got a bridge here in London that I can sell you. I believe there was something divine about the voice of Luciano Pavarotti, mm. and I'll give serious consideration uh, to it, Norma. Thanks very much indeed for that suggestion. Here's the poll on International Women's Day. Who is your woman of the year? A, Greta Thunberg, 44%, my God. B, Megan Windsor, 24%, double my God. And C, the Me Too women that brought down the uh, sexual uh, harassers and rapists and, and the uh, people guilty of sexual assault and exploitation, 32%, 515 of you have voted so far. You can do it now on my Twitter feed, at George Galloway. Uh, Fergus O'Toole uh, says, a woman of the year, a fourth option. Holy Mary, Mother of God. Woman of every year. Scouser Lar says, Tony Benn is very worth addition to the Moats Hall of Fame. I really wish he was with us today in his prime. He'd make mincemeat of today's politicians. Mr. Ben was of a different class, of a different order. Uh, he was literally head and shoulders above everybody else. By the way, Scouser, I'm in Liverpool next Saturday between 1 and 5 o'clock in Black E in Great George Street, number one Great George Street. All are welcome. You need to register, though, through Eventbrite. I hope you'll come and see me. I hope everyone in the Liverpool area watching and listening to this show tonight will see me next weekend in person where I'll be talking about the future of socialism after Labour, after Sir Keir Starmer. So that's next Saturday in Liverpool in Black E, 1 Great George Street in Liverpool. And uh, Chiselhurst Chap says, in response to your tweet about roads in London four hours ago, this week... Mayor Khan decreed that TfL roads would be 20 mile an hour zones. To enforce this, he deployed a small army of police. Do you think they may have been better occupied? I sure do. Now, before I go on to the book club sequence, let's hear from John in Berkshire on floods. John, have you been on before on this? Yes, George, it was on a few weeks ago. Scott. That's right. Bring us up to date. Uh, Boris Johnson paid a visit to Worcestershire today. He was heckled. He did visit one or two houses. He's promised to double the budget, uh, 2.5 to 5. Now, I don't know if that's million, billion. No, it's definitely it's million. It's, definitely million, it's I can assure you. <laughs> it's, it's certainly not a trillion anyway. No. So he's been up there 22 days after the damage. Yeah. Uh, he says he is going to do extra efforts and he's looking to, uh, how could you say, go further maybe to next year to, to prevention. But he needs to look at Holland. He's got to look at the Netherlands, what they've done. They constructed dams, barriers, permanent construction. We've only got temporary. The only permanent thing we've got is the flood barrier of London. The rest, there's nothing. They've got to start thinking of a more permanent solution like the Netherlands have done. They've been doing that for years, and that's what Boris Johnson... Are people bitter that uh, Boris Johnson didn't turn up for 22 days? If I was flooded 
frankly, the presence of the Prime Minister uh, would be the least of my worries. Yeah, well, he did turn up today uh, in good spirits, I believe, and he did pay a visit to one or two houses. He's promised to double the budget, as I said, and he's also promised to look into extending it for the future. But he's got to look at proper constructional dams, yeah. proper canalways to get rid of this water. It's not con even though they're getting rid of the water now, it'll just come back. There's nothing much holding it, much holding it apart from temporary flood barriers. They need to look at the Netherlands. They've got to look at proper dams, yeah. proper constructions to keep these people and the people's houses dry. Okay, good uh, point, uh, John. Thanks for the update. Maria Josefa do Espirito Santo says, Good afternoon, world. Hi, George, from Sao Paulo in Brazil. Maria, what a wonderful message. Thank you. Tommy Edge says, The first book I ever read, The Ragged Trousered Philanthropist. The other is buried in a porter's grave. The author, rather, is buried in a porter's grave. That should be pauper's grave. 500 yards from me in Liverpool. He made a big influence on me at 15 years old. Who could believe? You're right, Tommy. And that's about the age I was uh, when I read The Ragged Trousered Philanthropist. And I'll be coming on to that in just a minute. Last call from Ian in Hounslow. Ian, go ahead. Uh, good evening, George. I just wanted to tell you, yesterday I went to a conference hosted by London CND by, at SOAS on ethical foreign policy. And there were some very interesting speakers there from Iraq and Iran. Uh, and there were quite old guys who veteran politicians and uh, campaigners for civil rights. Uh, and they were saying that there are orphanages being set up in Syria for the children of uh, rape by ISIS. I don't know if you knew about that. I do, yeah. If yeah, you think about it, that, uh, rape by ISIS and these other uh, also pious Muslims, uh, yeah, has been a weapon. Is. Has been a weapon of war. Yeah. Also, um, they said about that there was a um, crisis in Iran with the coronavirus due to the sanctions following the fallout of the nuclear deal, and this is a crime against the Iranian people. Uh, they're, they're holding the Iranian people responsible for the actions of their government, and that's why there's a serious problem of a pandemic in Iran at the moment. Well, uh, it is particularly serious uh, in Iran, in South Korea, where, of course, there are no sanctions, uh, and in China, uh, where there's a trade war, but no uh, meaningful sanctions that have impacted on this situation. So I don't think that coronavirus can be in any way linked to sanctions, as you'll find out when it sweeps across the United States, as I right. predict it will. Yeah. Uh, but clearly, your ability to resist illness your ability to control public health uh, dangers in this way is seriously affected by sanctions. And if the United States wanted to do the right thing, they would announce at least the suspension of their sanctions on Iran whilst this <laughs> coronavirus emergency continues. Ian, I'm sorry, okay, we've run okay. out of uh, power. Thanks very much for that call. Uh, there's only time for me to announce the Moats Book Club. Here's how it's going to work. I'm going to pick a book and you're going to suggest them. Uh, and you can do that through Twitter. You can do it by phone call on the show. You can do it by writing to me. Uh, your suggestions will be very much taken on board. I'm not selling books in any way. I don't have the capacity to do that. But I am encouraging you to read 
The Ragged Trousered Philanthropist by Robert Tressel. You can get it in any good bookshop. You can get it online. I hope you can get it for free in your public library. But I want you all to read it because it is a book which made me what I am and made many, many people in this country what they are. It is a book which, though written uh, well over a hundred years ago, could have been written today. The exact same economic and social divisions described in this book apply today. The exact same scares about people different to us, in this case, when this book was written, Jewish refugees, Jewish exiles living in Britain could be described today, but with different faces, different names. But the tropes remain the same. The division between the rich and the poor, between the workers and those they work for, the insecurity of the lives of the mass of the population compared to the luxury and cruelty of those who have everything remains exactly the same. As a piece of work, this unemployed house painter, Robert Tressel, buried in a pauper's grave in Liverpool, which I'll visit next weekend, is a masterpiece. In four weeks' time, once you've all read it, we'll have a proper discussion on it with an expert, and we'll take calls and other communications, other observations that you have made about it. That's the launch of the Moats Book Club. It's been marvellous for me. I hope it was for you. And if it was, come back next week at the same time, in the same place, and bring somebody else with you. <laughs>